you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Howdy and welcome back to Prairie Justice, Craig Saunders Vigilante Podcast. We're in episode four today. Uh, I'm going to get right at it today. I'm going to—I've got some mail, but I'm going to forego that. I'm going to leave that till the next episode because we've got a very, very busy episode today, and it's not an action comics adventure of the Vigilante, although the Vigilante appears. Yes, folks, the time has arrived. For the debut of DC's second super team, but certainly not the least, the Seven Soldiers of Victory. We come now to a very significant point of time for the Vigilante. For just three stories out from his first appearance, Greg Saunders is inducted into what will become only Comington's second super team gathering, just a year after the introduction of the Justice Society of America. It was also the third example of a shared continuity between the characters of a comic title or company. The first such occurrence happened at Timely Comics Company with the tempestuous meeting of Namor the Submariner with the original Human Torch in the pages of Marvel Mystery Comics number 8, which appeared in April of 1940. Before that year was out, the Justice Society debuted in November of 1940, teaming a grand total of eight heroes in a single story, ten if you count the cameo appearances of Johnny Thunder and Red Tornado, The dialogue also hinted that Superman, Batman, and Robin also shared the existence of this original eight. The JSA story appeared in a full-length edition of All-Star Comics No. 3, published by the All-American Comics Company, owned by publisher Max Gaines. But All-Star 3 was a combination effort of two companies, Gaines' All-American and in concert with National Comics, a.k.a. DC Comics, as we know it today. Operated by Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz at that point in history. Despite separate ownership of titles and trademarks, both companies were somewhat joined at the hip, likely for purposes of securing paper stock and printing facilities in a magazine publishing environment that was controlled by the New York mob. All-American and National shared writers and artists and likely even office space, but on paper, separate corporate identities were in play. All-Star Comics itself was designed by the editors of both companies to feature the characters of each other's anthology titles in a sort of of best-of-publishing format. The first two issues used up stories of The Flash, Green Lantern, and The Spectre, as well as the original character of Gary Concord, Ultraman of the Future, which after All-Star number two, Gary Concord had no future, at least not in All-Star, as the two corporations literally sat at a table. Four heroes from each company and two from each title. Gaines contributed Hawkman and Flash from Flash Comics, 
Green Lantern and the Atom came over from All-American Comics, the, the title itself. National or DC lent The Sandman and Our Man from the best-selling adventure comics. And finally, More Fun Comics, ironically, lent us the mystical and grim powerhouses Dr. Fate and the Spectre. Why were Superman and Batman left out as more than mere mentions? Gee, maybe they were worried about overexposing these highly successful characters? Well, I'm glad DC has gotten over that. The ranger dripped with sarcasm into the microphone. But make no mistake, All-Star was meant purely as a marketing tactic. It was designed to cross-pollinate the titles, expose their characters to wider audiences, and entice more dimes out of readers' pockets. Not just to All-Star, but to the other titles as well, and hopefully generate enough buzz to launch these characters into their own titles, just as Superman and Batman had, and then rotate in new characters. That very thing happened with the Golden Age Flash and Green Lantern, and in time, most popularly, popularly, to Wonder Woman. That all aside, you get a book-length team title. In JSA at first, you had characters meet in framing sequences in the beginning to determine a threat, then go off on their own into chapters to fight lesser threats with different artists and styles and even writers that aped adventures from their own title. Then all would meet at the end to compare notes and defeat the main menace. In time, the team concept came into its own and the heroes would join forces as the main story became more important. Was it a success? Well, it must have been. For one year later, the National Comics side of the equation considered doing it again. With a new t title, Leading Comics, all of the traffics of All-Star repeated themselves, with some significant differences. For one thing, the project, under editor Whitney Ellsworth, would publish entirely under the imprint of National DC, with absolutely no involvement from All-American or Gaines, and with all of the trademark characters being borrowed from strictly DC titles. Why? Well, 80 plus, later, 80 plus years later, there are no notes to really explain that, but an educated guess can be made. My hypothesis speculates that DC wanted a team book without cross-company encumbrances, just in case something should happen between these corporate partnerships. Something to that effect may have been in the wind, for history tells us that eventually that very fear would come to pass. For about a year, around 1944 to 1945, Max Gaines did in fact pick up his toys, Flash, Green Lantern, the JSA, and others, and most vitally in terms of sales, Wonder Woman, and published on his own. That's right, in that year, you can find those characters in the pages only of All-American Comics. The company, not the title. Well, somewhere in the, the title. In the pages of All-Star, the JSA had their DC characters replaced with Gaines' All-American characters. And Gaines would come to terms eventually with Donenfeld and Leibowitz. And uh, at the end of that meeting, he would sell entirely his company to DC Comics and then went off onto other publishing ventures. So with the new gang in leading comics in 1941, Ellsworth made sure that that would not happen and plucked his characters from wholly owned DC titles. 
Now, what was this team called? Well, of course, I just told you, Seven Soldiers of Victory. But that really is another mystery of history. From leading comics number one, beginning in 1941, to its last story in leading number 14 in 1945, this group dominated the covers and title with no actual name featured on either the covers or on the title splash pages. Just the names of the characters were displayed. That's right. No one thought to even name the team for its entire three-and-a-half-year run. Only the final panel blurb that closes their first story in issue number one, which we're going to cover today, gives us a hint of the group's name. And so we leave these seven soldiers of victory until Justice's clarion call again summons them to action in the next issue of Leading Comics. Bingo. That's it. There it was. No underline, no boldface, and not even a logo that will inform us that this will be the name of our supergroup. Not until their ultimate revival, almost three decades later, after their final appearance in the Golden Age, will we learn that these are, in fact, the Seven Soldiers of Victory. When scripter Len Wayne dusts them off in the landmark Justice League of America number 100 in 1972. And as I've mentioned, that's where the Little Ranger finds the soldiers, and in particular, the vigilante. And I had been right since, partners. So now that we know all of that backstory, who are these soldiers? Well, we already know about the vigilante, just in case you forgot what podcast you've tuned into. But it might be most efficient to allow one of the greats of comics fandom and the master of editorial text pages introduce our heroes. From a text page that was published in Justice League of America number 111, by the immortal E. Nelson Bridwell, then the reprints editor of DC and a walking encyclopedia of comics lore. On this occasion, JLA 111 was covering uh, leading comics number two in the second adventure of the Seven Soldiers, and Bridwell put this text in as, uh, as an explanation of that. Now, Nelson's great text piece didn't include any creator details on the characters, so rather than me trying to sandwich that in at this point, I'll bring that up in my reader notes after the audio drama. For now, I will quote E. Nelson Bridwell verbatim. The first to appear was the Crimson Avenger, who'd appeared in Detective Comics number 20, October 1938. That's before... Batman appeared in Detective, and just a few months after Superman appeared in Action Comics 1. In these early days, the Avenger wore an ordinary business suit, plus a mask, crimson cape, and a slouch hat, reminiscent of the shadow. Like some other heroes of that period, the Crimson Avenger made a good deal of use of a gas gun. He also had a servant named Wing, who dressed in a chauffeur's uniform and was the only confidant who knew his boss was in reality Lee Travis, wealthy young publisher of the Globe Leader. In Detective No. 44, October of 1940, the hero adopted a new skin-tight costume, and at first he continued to wear a cape, but that was eventually dropped. Wing finally donned a costume of his own that was in reverse colors of the Avenger in issue No. 59, January number 1942. The other heroes all appeared 
in late 1941. The Shining Knight could be the claim to be the oldest of them all, however. In Adventure Comics number 66, September 1941, it was told how Sir Justin of the Round Table went out from King Arthur's citadel of Serlon on the River Usk. Apologize for my English friends. In the year of our Lord 532, to seek out and destroy an ogre who was terrorizing the Northland. And on the way, he accidentally freed the wizard Merlin from a spell which had imprisoned him. To reward him, the, to reward Justin, rather, the sorcerer changed his heavy armor into solid gold, at the same time making it light and cool to wear. Bulletproof, too, said the old fellow, but you won't be finding about that, about that for some time yet. Merlin also cast a spell on Justin's horse, Victory, changing him from gray to white and causing him to sprout wings. In his new outfit on a magical steed, Justin quickly found the ogre and slew him. But the battle caused an avalanche of ice, which buried both the knight and his charger. They remained frozen for 14 centuries, until Dr. Moresby, a museum director, freed him from an iceberg with dynamite. As Justin, curiously, he was never given a last name, at least not as, as of this continuity, he went to work in the museum while he often donned his magical armor and mounted winged, winged victory to fight evil in the modern world. And just uh, breaking out from Nelson for a minute, I believe it was Roy Thomas in All-Star Squadron who finally gave Justin his last name of Justin Arthur. Also, it's worth noting that uh, Justin's uh, magic Iron Man armor and the winged horse is as close as any of the soldiers of victory at this point in time ever get to having superpowers. So they're base basically uh, street-level or ground-level adventurers. October 1941 was the date of Star Spangled Comics number one, brand new ish comic, in which the Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy first appeared. This was a unique team since the Kid was the leader, quite the opposite of Batman and Robin or Green Arrow and Speedy. Their origin had to wait a while until uh, Star Spangled Comics number 18. Then it was told how Sylvester Pemberton, son of a wealthy banker, and mechanic Pat Dugan were both at a theater watching a patriotic movie when some Nazis disrupted the show. The two fought the traitors and then each got a look at a telegram one of the Nazis dropped telling of a meeting. While Pat was repairing Sylvester's car, they both heard someone wish the American flag could come to life and punish the Nazi traitors. Each then devised a, co a special costume and Pat added the amazing car he designed, the Star Rocket Racer. At first operating independently, they finally combined forces to halt a plot against the United States, and Pat later took a job with the Pemberton family as their chauffeur. So, wow, the seven soldiers in <laughs> of victory include two chauffeurs. Uh, the Green Arrow and Speedy made their bow, or their bow, pun intended, puns are always intended, in More Fun Comics number 73, November 1941, and their origin was told in number 89, March 1943, 
But hold it, folks. This is the Earth 2 Golden Age Green Arrow and Speedy, so no islands involved. That saved you five years right there, inside joke. Roy Harper, his father, and then what they're calling an Indian servant, let's call it First Nations, Quag, were caught in a plane wreck in which the elder Harper was killed. The boy and the Indians were trapped on top... The boy and the Indian were trapped atop a sheer mesa, and the boy learned archery from his one friend. Meantime, wealthy Oliver Queen was an expert on Indian lore. Uh, let's just go with it. And also had learned to draw a mean bow. But some thugs looting a museum accidentally started a fire that destroyed his collection of artifacts. Oliver went to the Lost Mesa to forget the loss with the new archaeological expedition. A crook, hearing his intention and catching the words gold mine, landed on the Mesa by autogyro. That's an early kind of helicopter, folks, where he and his gang tangled with Roy and Quag. Later, Oliver landed there, and he and Harper, he and Roy, were seized by the thugs. Queen laughed at the criminals. Quayog helped him escape, but was killed by the crooks. Later, the two found a hidden city of gold inside the mesa and fought the villains there. That kid Speedy, said one. He shoots a mean green arrow, said the another of Oliver. A falling statue crushed the criminals, but the two heroes escaped and used those names given by their foes. The vigilante, as we all know, because we've listening to this podcast, haven't we, made his initial appearance in Action Comics number 42, November 1941. Greg Saunders, Western singer, was the son of a sheriff. The father was killed by bandits from the east who were after a gold shipment carried by one of the last stagecoaches in service. Greg became the vigilante to avenge his dad. Now, the rest of the text page goes on to cover the origin of the soldiers as they battle the hand, but uh, we're going to be spending a little bit of time with that story, so no sense recounting it now. Other than one line here, Wing was not originally an official member, but later he became the eighth soldier of victory. Now, that's a very interesting thing, and, and this is why I often think that Possibly it was supposed to be the eight soldiers of victory all along, since since we have already established that they never really were given a name. But the trouble comes from that tagline at the end of this story that Len Wayne and DC officially would later catch up on. And unfortunately, uh, Mort Weisinger, who probably wrote that tagline, didn't seem to count his soldiers or for some strange reason, didn't count Wing as one of the soldiers, even though he had participated in the story and would participate in every Seven Soldiers of Victory story until 1945 when the feature ended. So that's just sort of one of the mysteries of DC history that we get, and um, we all know that in Justice League of America 100, 101, 102, in that JLA-JSA team, Wing will finally get his due and make an ultimate sacrifice 
in the story that finally turns the tables on the hand. So with all of that behind us, here we go with the first adventure. Leading Comics number one, and this is a quarterly publication for as long as the soldiers occupy the title. Again, 10 cents for 64 pages. But folks, that four pages counts the two, uh, the four covers, covers, inside cover, back cover. So you're getting 60 pages inside, and that's 60 solid pages of story. The only ads occur as DC house ads in the inside covers. So that's a heck of a gamble for DC. You know, they're, they're counting on uh, prying a lot of dimes out of kids' pockets for this book and not getting any ad revenue for it. So quite a gamble. It came on sale December 17th, 1941, cover dated winter 1942. But using Roy Thomas's rationale for retroactive continuity, of which I am a student, this tale needs to take place sometime earlier than December 17th, 1941. In fact, it needs to take place before December 7th, 1941. That date ought to ring a bell with you. As a historian, it sure does for me. Because that would adjust things to the events of All-Star Squadron number one. So let's just fudge this timeline and put this tale into late December, November or early December 41. Because the issue takes place over the space of a week. As we'll find out in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the beginning in framing sequence. And that's also a big hint of what I'll be doing in the next episode of Prairie Justice. I'm a history guy. Timelines are my first order of business. That's how I roll. Now, the cover itself is uh, very plain, actually. Uh, in most, as of most DC titles at the time, you've got a very iconic um, logo for the, the title, the leading comics uh, Logo title, masthead, I guess that's the word I want to say. Um, trade dress is very sparse. The number one is over in the left-hand corner. DC logo over in the right-hand corner. Cross the banner headline at the top. Five favorite features. We got seven soldiers, or eight soldiers counting wing. That's going to nag us forever. We just might as well get used to us to it. But they all come out of five different features, as we've said. You've got that 10 cent on there. And again, somebody can't count because we've only got six of our characters on there. Not only is Wing missing, somebody forgot to call Stripesy. He must have been parking the Star Rocket Racer. Our cover artist for this kickoff is none other than vigilante artist Mort Meskin. Um, you got Vig going from left to right. You got Vigilante. He's standing there with his hands on his buckle, looking very cowboy-like. Green Arrow and Speedy are dropping from the top. Star Spangled Kid is standing in front of Shining Knight. And Crimson Avenger is looking very superhero-like with his hands folded over onto the side. And it's a bit of a crowded cover, and that's probably why Stripesy disappeared. And it's got the names of the features across the bottom. And we know what they are now. I don't have to say it again. A variation of this cover drawing, and I remember it very well, will appear in 1974 as a pinup, also in Justice League of America number 111. Uh, by, well, it's unsigned. 
but appears to me to be either Dick Dillon, because uh, he was the JLA's main penciler, or it could be Irv Novick, who was generally used by DC at the time as a house-style artist and sometimes often didn't sign his work. He would do covers or fill-ins like, like this. So that's just an educated guess. Now, for all you fans of variant covers, and I just heard the, the, uh, the volumes click, Leading Comics number one has a variant cover. And you're not going to believe who's on it. Batman and Robin! In the All-Star Companion, uh, I believe this is volume four, page 133, by the estimable Roy Thomas, he has an illustration of Leading Comics number one in this so-called variant cover. It's actually a misnomer, me calling it a variant. I was just leading you along. I'll do that from time to time. This is actually called an ash can cover. See, I cleaned it up for you. It doesn't vary. It sound nice, better, nicer than ash can. But the reason they called it ash can, when they were going to uh, launch a new comic, they wanted to trademark it before the comic was actually printed. That meant they would probably take even the black and white pages. And I guess they must have been a lot of trouble with, uh, you know, with different people going back and forth with different offices in New York City uh, between different companies. And I guess, um, you know, editors wanted to be a little bit cagey with their property. So what they would do is they would uh, throw a different cover on there. And it's usually a cover with a, f a picture of something else. And in fact, this cover is from, um, it's the Batman and Robin cover from Detective Comics number 57, November 1941 and they just wrapped this thing around and they only printed probably a few probably less than 10 and I may be overestimating that at the time and what they would basically do is, is put this in an envelope and mail it back to themselves then you'd have a postage stamp on it and that uh, in the weird world of trademarking is how you established copyright and or trademark and sometimes these ash cans, if they get around, they can be quite valuable. But you know what? I wouldn't go looking for one. I've never seen one in my life, and I had never heard of this concept until I read this great series of books that Roy Thomas put out a few years ago from Two Morals Publishing. Um, it's called the All-Star Companions. And like I said, there's four editions, and they're just chock full of details. If you love the Justice Society, the Soldiers, Infinity Inc., All-Star Squadron, any of that, um, you know, these are worth tracking down. And I think they might be getting pretty pricey. I don't know if they're still in print. Um, I know by the time I finally completed my collection a few years ago, it was starting to get up there. But uh, I treasure these because it's just so full of information. You're going to be have your head so much full of useless trivia by the time you read these book this books you won't be safe enough for public company which is i guess why we're podcasters so back to the title in another first this title will give us comics first super villain team the five fingers of the hand very pulpy name huh this loose association will predate the first appearance of the Injustice Society over in the JSA feature by six years. Our main story is called Blueprint for Crime. 
and the subchapters will have their own titles as we get through them. Managing this effort is our Action Comics editor, Whitney Ellsworth, pulling double duty on this title, and there's quite the stable of creators to manage. For starters, we have three writers. We have Vigilante and Green Arrows creator Mort Weisinger. He's our lead writer. I'll bet he was quite the guy, uh, quite the brash young Turk to be around in the uh, Golden Age. Certainly he would be no fun as an editor in the Silver Age. The Star Spangled Kids creator Jerry Siegel. You may also remember Jerry as creating such hero superheroes as the Spectre and... Oh yeah, Superman. He's writing the kids chapter. And John Letty is writing the Crimson Avenger chapter, and he's also handling the artwork on that. Mort Meskin is, of course, on the Vigilante. Hal Sherman is on the Star Spangled Kid chapter. The immortal Craig Flessel is penciling the Shining Knight. And good old George Papp, the original Green Arrow artist, is pulling triple duty, drawing G.A.'s chapter as well as the opening and closing framing chapters. This story has been reprinted once in its entirety in the Seven Soldiers of Victory Archives edition, number one of three such prestigious hardcover book formats. That's right, folks, the Seven Soldiers got an archives edition, with all the leading comics' appearances printed in three volumes between 2005 and 2008. That makes me happy. Why not? The 1940s Green Arrow also got an archives edition treatment and an omnibus, even though the vigilante did not. Even with Mort Meskin's art gracing his career, the vigilante did not get an archives edition before DC stopped publishing said editions. And I'm not a bit bitter about that at all. Not one bit. If they want to just disappoint people who would give them money for that, who am I to interfere with that right? But I'm not bitter. Speaking of Green Arrow, his chapter of this SSOV story was published in trade as well. In Green Arrow, a celebration of 75 years hardcover, published in 2016. Say DC, ODC, it's 2021 and the Vigilante is 80 years old this year. Maybe something of a worthy of a book and celebration? Just saying, just saying, but not bitter. And of course, the Sharp listeners may already know that this story is encapsulated in flashback in the Immortal Justice League of America number 100, in which it is pivotal to that uh, JLA-JSA team-up from 1972. And there we find out that the hand reappears and is found to have a long overreach. Pun intended. My puns are always intended. Now before we get started, there's some disclaimers I have to make. We are reading a story from the early 1940s. And let's just say that sensibilities aren't what we would want them to be here in the year 2021. So let's just keep that in mind. Um, I'm not going to cut any of these out. I'm going to just roll right through. And as I track this verbatim, I have no meaning to offend. If there's something there that grabs you, well, don't worry. I flag these things. And I will talk about them in my notes afterward the entire drama.
All together in one whirlwind adventure. The Star Spangled Kid. Vigilante. The Green Arrow. The Shining Knight. And the Crimson Avenger. From today on, the grim hosts of Gangdom have a new and powerful combine of righteousness to contend with. You know all these heroes. Now follow them as they pool their vast powers to lash out with crushing force against dark demons of destruction in the hand of a master mind of Machiavellian cunning and power. But how came these gallant fingers to join in mortal combat against the Arch-Kremel and his glittering galaxy of goons? Strangely enough, it was the Arch-Kremel himself who brought them together. Turn the page. Read on. Learn how the superego of a super crook led him to spit himself against these modern knights of the round table. We open to see a giant, grotesque hand against a clouded background. And from the fingers and thumb of the hand, five master villains dangle. Greedy fingers straining for the wealth of other men. A merciless fist upraised against society. These are symbolic of the hand. A criminal so cruel and cunning as to stand unique among the rogues of the world. No other would have had the supreme arrogance to challenge America's foremost champions of justice to the mighty contest of wits and weapons in the adventure of The Blueprint for Crime. We open in the mansion of the Hand, the master criminal as he learns that a death sentence is pronounced by a judge from whom there is no appeal. I, I'm sorry, the x-rays indicate that you have less than a month to live. I, I've consulted with experts, and I'm afraid there's no hope. You sure? Less than a month? The physician starts back to the city. Away from the grim, dark mansion of the hand, as he ponders a mystery outside the bounds of medicine. A strange house, a strange man. Wonder why he's so secretive about himself. While in the isolated house, the condemned man broods bitterly. Dying. Me. The hand. The greatest criminal the world has ever known. Oh, what a pity the hand a napoleon of crime whose master strokes have stunned the world an enigma the police have never solved and now a doctor too stupid to cure me brings down the curtain but my greatest coup is still ahead of me foolproof schemes planned here in detail now they will never be carried out a newspaper headline interests the hand. Daily Chronicle. Big Caesar sentenced to 20 years. A smart lad, Caesar. He could follow my blueprints for crime if he were free. And there are other good men in prison. Why should my precious plants be wasted? Why shouldn't I go out in a blaze of glory? Yes, that's what I'll do. Ho, ho, ho. 
What a scheme. I still have time to play the greatest game of all. I can still outwit the cleverest brains on the side of the law. Only a month. No time to waste. I'll call that Black Baron in Chicago. Little Joe Goss in Seattle. We'll get the underworld machine started. I'll show them. The world will remember the hand forever. I'll crowd Captain Kidd and Jesse James right out of the history books. Sensational prison breaks liberates the country's most notorious criminals. Red Dragon blasts away to freedom. Daily Comet. Autogyro frees Professor Merlin. New York star Big Caesar crashes out. A.M. Needle pierces prison wall as the hand laughs at his handiwork. <laughs> One last coup to plot. On a dark country road, gunmen ambush a police squad on its way to raid the hideout of the dummy, the infamous kidnapper. Watch me make this cherry gun tuck. While that baffling doll-like figure, in itself a puzzle, long unsolved, is speeded out of the danger zone by armed henchmen. It's a lucky thing the hand tipped us off that the cops were closing in. By devious ways, the five fugitive criminals arrive at the mysterious hilltop house, where the hand awaits them. Oh, you owe your liberty to me. I have brought you here to offer you something else. A gamble that may make you rich. Or end your careers permanently. I have a perfect crime for each of you planned. You will be the hand's five fingers. You're all right, hand. Not so fast. In carrying that crime out, each of you will be opposed by a worthy opponent. You will play a life and death death game with my brains and your wits and weapons matched against such men as the Green Arrow and the Crimson Avenger. Ah, kiss. With our brains and, and the hand's plans, nobody can stop us. What's the ideal? Here's the whole dope. Follow instructions to the letter and you'll be safe. Marlin, you're to go to Death Valley. You, Needle, to the Panama Canal Zone. We'll make chumps out of the so-called heroes. Left alone, the hand enjoys his private joke. Now to line up the opposition. <laughs> I'll enjoy this as much as if I were taking part in it. And if any of the Manhunters gets his man, I'll attend to it personally. Next day, a full-page ad appears in newspapers in all sections of the country. Challenge to champions. The Hand, Master of Crime, invites the Green Arrow, the Shining Knight, the Crimson Avenger, the Vigilante, the Star-Spangled Kid to participate in the greatest criminal chase in history. Tuesday at 10 p.m. in Gotham City Auditorium. Not one of the arch-foes of crime spurns the challenge. From all points of the compass, they converge at the appointed spot. The Green Arrow and Speedy Wonder Archers flash towards the scene in their aeroplane. 
fastest thing on wheels. The shining knight rides the clouds by his winged steed, Victory. The star-spangled kid in stripes, he straight through a starry sky in the rocket racer. These famed five, with the crimson avenger and the vigilante, meet their doubtful appointment. Maybe this is the hand's idea of a joke. Forsooth, would meet this arch-villain. Promptly at ten, the lights dim, the grinning face appears on a prepared screen, and a voice booms out. Gentlemen, you will understand, I am sure, why I do not come before you in person. I am about to become, for the first time in my life, an informer. You are aware that five of the most dangerous criminals on earth are at large today. It is my purpose to tell you where they are, so that you may go after them if you wish. The red dragon is in the valley of Vamona. Big Caesar has returned to the Times Square district. Professor Merlin is in Death Valley. The dummy in Hollywood and the needle in the Panama Canal Zone. There, gentlemen, is opposition enough for you. Now, as the image fades... Trick or not, I think it's our duty to investigate. Speedy and I will go to Death Valley to look for Merlin. I'm with you. Only I'll go on to Hollywood to see what the dummy's up to. Me for Times Square. I'll take Big Caesar. Stripesy and I have tangled with the needle before, so we'll choose him. Methinks a joust with the red dragon would remind me of the good old days. Uh, fellow crime fighters designed this strange meeting. May lie a more sinister scheme than any of us suspects. I move we meet again in the, this room from a week from tonight to report to one another and to consider further the problem in the hand itself. And I offer a slogan for each of us to carry in his heart during the perilous days ahead. Woe to all workers of evil. Bravo! Hear, hear. Okay, so now for my commentary, beginning chapter of the hand. Okay, so now for a commentary on this opening chapter, featuring mostly the hand. It's a six-page framer. Actually, you can say five-page because the, at the beginning we have the introductory splash, which basically does the same thing as the cover. Shows our seven heroes. Uh, seven, not eight. Wing is not here, but at least they're all here. Uh, Stripesy is not parking the car anymore. And we have logos for our five features, uh, but these just seem to be generic logos. They don't seem to be the regular logos that are used in the in the heroes' regular strips, other than perhaps the Star Spangled Kid. That seems to be the same logo used from uh, the stories in Star Spangled Comic. We basically have the Shining Knight at center, and he's flanked on either side, uh, left side Crimson Avenger and Green Arrow and Speedy, right side Vigilante, uh, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy. And it's sort of very similar to what we'll see way, 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 way ahead in JLA 100 on their cover and splash page, uh, recreated by the great Nick Carty. So we'll just uh, move along on that. We have another a half splash that opens up our framing sequence. And the way these things work is you've got a framing sequence at the beginning, a framing sequence at the end. That sort of serves to be the gathering and the conclusion of the other heroes as they basically go on their way. And at that point, you know, the 
the the middle body chapters sort of resemble what you would probably see in their regular uh, stories, although, you know, references are to, you know, the, the villain that they're fighting at this point in time. We're going to meet the hand pretty quick, and he's symbolized by a very grotesque hand, complete with uh, long fingernails, sort of reminds you of a Fu Manchu kind of a thing, although that's probably the last of that Asian imagery that you'll see anywhere else. And there's a, the ropes are dangling from the five fingers and thumbs, and from them dangle the five villains that our soldiers are going to, to battle. Left to right, the Red Dragon, who has been featured in the Shining Knight feature in Adventure Comics. Big Caesar, who will be Devil the uh, Crimson Avenger, and this is apparently his only appearance. He's sort of a generic, uh, kind of a cross between a street thug and a gang boss. He sort of resembles Sluggo from Nancy, if you're familiar with that strip. And we've got the needle. Well, the needle is sort of Ralph Dibney meets Larry Fine from the Three Stooges is the only way I can say it. He's very long and lanky. He's not stretched any amount of the word, but he looks like he could. He's just... Uh, that's just sort of his look and his appeal. We've got Professor Merlin, who I believe might have appeared once before in the Green Arrow strip in more fun comics, and I think this is his last appearance. And then making his first appearance, and probably the most long-lasting of any of these villains, is the dummy, and more on him later. And we're going to begin, uh, as we have been doing with most of these Mort Weisinger-type stories, we're beginning in a dark for boating place um the hand who greatly to me resembles marlon brando's character in the godfather the iconic uh, older gentleman a crime boss he's got a sort of a gas uh ghostly pallor and he's been told by his doctor that he's going to die the old Doc, you've got so much to live. You've got a month to live. As you see uh, the doctor drive away, you can see that uh, this crime boss has done very, very well. He's got a very fabulous mansion here with at least three spires and one clock tower sort of a looking thing. Whatever the hand was into, and I'm just going to say by his uh, look, he appears to be around 50 to 60 years old. And that's sort of surprising because he's actually going to have a very long endurance within the uh, the DC universe from time to time. He's going to appear again, of course, in that landmark JLA 100. And we're going to see him way ahead in Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers miniseries, or maxi-series, I should say. It's a multi-maxi-series uh, that ran between 2005-2006. And there's going to be ties from this story into those uh, into those, those those tales from 1972 and 2006. So uh, the story we're reading here has got lots of legs. And the hand is basically going into his soliloquy. There's basically going through all of the five stages of grief here, and he's all the way to acceptance here within less than three panels and finally he decides he's going to commit the ultimate crime and he's going to pull all of his uh resources and we've yet to see what his resources are uh it's more than just wealth here he's got a bit of technology going on and he has basically pulled i won't say literally out of a hat but he has pulled out of a hat 
the names of five superheroes that he wants to battle by proxy through examining the soup the, the newspapers that he seems to have all the newspapers of the nation and he's going to gather red red dragon professor merlin big caesar and the needle and of course he has an in on a very bizarre villain by the name of the dummy a kidnapper by trade and we do get to see the dummy because he springs that villain from police custody on at a roadside ambush I suppose as assuming that they're going to take this very strange-looking character off to the Huskow. Well, not anymore, because the Hans goons knock him down and uh, take the dummy away. We have a meeting here of uh, all our five particulars, and they're basically sitting around a small table, planning their daring dues. The Hand basically tells them where to go and what to do. And uh, we'll, we'll get into those locations. There's no sense doubling it up right now. And, of course, it's a challenge that goes out in the personal zones. I guess today you do this by Facebook. But the hand uh, uses his resources to put personnel ads. Uh, if you don't know what that is, folks, if you don't know what a newspaper is, well, I don't know what to say. But in newspapers, you'd have classified ads. Um, the sort of places where you sell cars and lost, find lost uh, pets and uh, announce weddings and funerals and things like that. And in the classified, there would be a thing called the personal column. If you wanted to send a communication to a particular person, often these were a little bit in code, and you just hope that they read the newspaper. And that's actually a better bet than you think it is. Um, up until a few years ago, the the newspaper was a, a morning ritual, daily ritual for many people, myself included, until they all got very, very costly. And we were finding that we, we knew the news that... Uh, was being offered in the headlines because we'd all been on social media or on the television. Our bottom row, we see that at least uh, three of these acts have seen the, the personal ad, and they are heading to Gotham City. So we know that this is in the DC Universe. And, of course, this is very early in the careers of most of these people. As you can remember, we've had a lot while to figure out exactly where the vigilante lives. Most of these, these, these characters are coming from some version of New York City or a fictional derivation thereof. Green Arrow and Speedy. Now, this is one of the interesting things that I wanted to say that you probably may have been confused in the commentary that they are speeding along the road in their aeroplane. Well, if you had an aeroplane, why would you be on the road? Well, this is actually a car, um, a very souped-up roadster. As we know, Green Arrow and Speedy are sort of Batman and Robin meets Robin Hood, if you're going to call it a water cooler sort of arrangement. And for some reason, Mark Weisinger here uh, is calling this car the aeroplane. Not as an airplane, but the aeroplane. I think he's trying to have a pun and more... It's not working. And we do know that in a few years and a few within a few issues here, more fun comics, the aeroplane will become the aero car and the aeroplane will be an actual airplane. And we see Shining Knight, of course, winging off on his steed Victory. Sometimes they call him Winged Victory and sometimes they call him Victory. Um, I always think that the winged is just an affectation, sort of like the, uh, the Amazing Spider-Man. And the Star Spangled and Stripes here are off in a... Well, it has always appeared to be me to be a 1939 or 1940 Ford that has wings and rockets on it. So we'll get into that a little bit later on how that thing works. And they do meet on what appears to be the stage of a theater in an auditorium. And suddenly a screen comes down and uh, the hand is talking to them through some sort of a closed circuit uh, television arrangement because we see his face. 
can hear his voice. And this is interesting because at this point in time, television is very much a, sort of the rich man's toy. And we, when you do see the uh, television anywhere, it's a very small screen in black and white. But, oh, here's the hand in glorious color. So it could be a film projection sort of a thing. But uh, he actually is talking on what almost appears to be a computer screen. So the hand's got some tech here, and he's way ahead of time. The War Department might be wanting to talk to the hand, and we'll get more of this on something he calls an electrovision. And so these heroes who have never met each other, other than the uh, the sidekick teams like the Kid and Stripesy and Green Arrow and Speedy, um, they decide that in one week's time they will head off to meet these challenges and they will meet back here at that same auditorium in a week. And I kind of appreciate that, that they're giving us a time limit, not only just to read the book, not just to perform the podcast, but they're allowing us some belief that uh, it's going to take some time to get to these places that they need to go. For example, uh, one team needs to go to Panama, and that's a bit of a stretch, and uh, Vigilante needs to go to Hollywood, and Green Arrow and Speedy need to go to Death Valley. Now, you know that Death Valley and Hollywood are both in California, and at uh, one point, it looks like Vigilante is asking for a ride from Green Arrow and Speedy. Unfortunately, that won't, uh, the, the, somewhere between the panels, that doesn't seem to work because we will see Green Arrow and Speedy arrive at Death Valley without Vigilante. But we'll both we'll talk to that as we move along. Good old Sir Justin, uh, he's a guy that you'd follow into combat because he's standing there ramrod straight with a sword in the air and uh, a slogan for each of us to carry in his heart during the perilous days of work. Ahead, woe to all workers of evil. Well, the other heroes, uh, there's not a lot of argument, and they give a big bravo and here, 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 and a tiger roar, and off their way. So we'll move along next to the Green Arrow. The Green Arrow. The Green Arrow and his dynamic protege, Young Speedy, wizards of the bow and arrow, are drawn into the grisly net of crime with which the Hand is trying to ensnare the country. The trail of villainy leads into that earth-scorched spot whose name is symbolic of the Hand, Death Valley. The aeroplane, that super motor car of blinding speed, carries the Green Arrow and his nervy young partner to their rendezvous with crime. I hope we can take Professor Merlin by surprise, Green Arrow. Speedy, I have a hunch that the Hand may be have told Merlin to expect us. We may be driving into a trap. Maybe you're right. Look up there. And the shadow a silhouette of an airplane laden with bombs darkens the aeroplane. That's fine. The show will start any second now. Inside the sinister aircraft. Ah, oh, a splendid target. I would almost prefer to match with the Green Arrow, but this is the safest way. Let it go, Chief. That radio-controlled bomb could hit that hole in a donut at this altitude. Marlon yanks the lever, and the grim messenger of death hurdles earthward. Wow, that big bird laid an egg. Hold tight. You'll hear it cackle in a second. Standing in the car and staring with his knees, the Green Arrow fires a shaft with incredible power and speed. This'll hatch their eggs. I'll take mine scrambled, please. The point of the arrow crashes against the detonator of the bomb. He's now up to something else. I don't like the sound of it. That guy must think he's a prize hen. A blood-chilling sight looms just ahead. He's blown up the bridge across the canyon. No time for a detour. Give her the gun. I've got my ears tucked in. And the aeroplane jumps the canyon in one fell swoop. Jeepers, that thing's so deep I can see Chinamen down there. What do we need with wings? 
And that was your last bomb. No matter. I can attend to them later, and with a more personal touch. On toward the desert castle upon which the hand has laid his malignant finger. There's the old home of Cat Cactus Mike, a funny old duffer who is believed to have vast quantities of gold from a secret mine. That's what the hand has sent Professor Merlin here to steal, the gold. He'll use it to wreck the economic structure of the country. But Professor Merlin arrives and lands his mob by parachute. Land on the roof, men. It's broad and flat. Green Arrow faces a long climb to the house. No time to take those steps. I'll take the catapult route. Contact, Speedy. Contact. Speedy presses a concealed button and the powerful catapult hurls the Green Arrow into space. Good way to cool off. It's funny, every window is shut tight. Wow, this place is like a Turkish bath. I close your window, you horned toad. You want me to freeze to death. But before the Green Arrow can explain his presence... That move will kill you instantly. Why do you lizards want of me? Ah, business is picking up. Moving with incredible speed, the Green Arrow flings into action. You're not teaching this class, Professor. Watch my gun! That green buckaroo's sure fast on the draw. The green arrow flashes another shaft through the window. The arrow point is fitted with a shrill whistle. This is a two-man job, so... And that's the trouble signal. Come on, catapult, do your stuff. Express elevator floor, please. Meanwhile, Merlin regains his gun. Give us the old man green arrow and we won't shoot. Is it a deal? I don't make deals with rats, Merlin. That's telling him. I guess it's up to me. Speedy whips an arrow to his bow and... No moose is good, moose. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the roof... Looks like they need help. And that means it's time for us to do other stuff. Nice going, Speedy. You're not doing bad yourself. Dang! If I don't like this activity, keeps me warm. But suddenly, three figures drop from the skylight. That'll stop you, brat. Well, stay, you walrus. Unless you want your skull dented in with a pistol butt. So, moments later... And now we will do things my way. I must learn the hiding place of our host's gold. But realizing that he couldn't be persuaded in ordinary ways, I have come prepared to make him talk. There you darndest. You'll never get your thieving fingers on my gold. The hand has long been aware of Cactus Mike's unnatural terror of freezing. We have a small machine which by a secret device will lower the temperature in this room to 50 below zero. Professor Merlin dons a suit of thin material and remains alone to operate the machine of creeping death. That temperature inches down. Better talk before you're frozen stiff. The cold can't touch me. The suit is heated by electricity. The desert hermit succumbs to his horrible fear of freezing. I'll tell. I'll tell. Only... Don't let me die of this awful cold. The temperature outside is 110 in the shade. Dwell on that, my meddlesome friends, while you slowly turn into icicles. We're still not as cold as your heart. And I'd like to knock you out this cold. But, chilled to the bone, half dead with cold, they force their numb muscles into action. Glad this professor didn't know all our tricks. Ready, Green Arrow? Let's go. There, Speedy. That's for the freezing device. And that's for the window. Weather report. Fair and warmer. The Green Arrow and Speedy cut their... Edging laboriously to the window. The Green Arrow and Speedy cut their bonds with a sliver of shattered glass. 
And moments later, they roar once more through the blinding heat of the desert, following the professor's plane. They're forcing old Mike to direct them to his secret gold cache. The poor old fellow may be flying high for the last time. And in the airplane? There she is. It's halfway down the canyon yonder. The entrance to the tunnel. There's tons of it. You scorpions can never handle it. Have no fear on that score. The hand is arranged for everything. The plane is deftly landed near the edge of the canyon. All right, boys. All out. This calls for a change of plan. The aeroplane can't hop this ditch. Golly, what a golly. Professor Merlin forces Cactus Mike ahead of him into the tunnel. Stand guard. Our work will be swift, pleasant, and profitable. It's going to be cold in here. If the professor finds the gold, Cactus Mike will never come out alive. Unless we bring him out. What are we waiting for? The arrow line streaks across the deep ravine. Bullseye, right into the shaft log. Using the Green Arrow's bow as a vehicle, the two streak across the chasm like twin meteors. A good trick if we can do it. We're doing it, aren't we? Time for the afternoon nap. Say all. And using this new-fashioned blitzkrieg, the thugs topple backward right into a cactus bed. I know what I've had enough. That's all, brother. Gangway. Come on, Speedy, into the mine. Hope we're not too late. Meanwhile... So this is the door to the gold storeroom. I'll trouble you for the key. I ain't got no key. It's back home. You dragged me away too fast to get it. A small matter. A light charge of dynamite will do the trick. And you, Cactus Mike, will remain beside the dynamite to see that it goes off properly. Shoots me, you weasel. It'll be better than freezing to death at that. Then seemingly... From nowhere, two arrows streak towards the criminal's two lanterns. Look out! Smart shooting partners. Pistols blaze as darkness floods the tunnel. Come on, Cactus Mike, this way. You're telling me? Cactus Mike, familiar with the tunnel, leads his rescuers through the inky gloom. I don't know who you tall hombres are, but you sure know how to handle rattlesnakes. Come on, I'll make you out, have you out of here in a hurry. Well, back in the mine. It's fortunate that I remember to bring along an extra light. Now hurry with that dynamite. I must be sure that the gold is here. We'll attend to the green arrow later. Moments later, a boom. A dull boom echoes through the old mine shaft. Them local fools have tried to dynamite the door. The rotten timber of this mine could never stand it. They're dead by the time we're in, and we're next. Come on, we're almost out. A landslide, it didn't do us no good to get out. We're goners now. Anchor to that cactus, Speedy. Right. And as the all-engulfing avalanche thunders down, the arrow line provides a mean of escape. You two glutes are as good as a pair of aces back-to-back. Swing your partner. Safely on the other side. That ends another chapter with crime getting the payment it deserves. The gold is hidden from the hand of man. Sealed in the sand beyond the grasp of the hand. Shoots me all around that gold was getting on my nerves. Whoever named this place Death Valley sure knew what he was doing. Later, as the wizard archers streak off into the distance. Ugh, temperature's getting down to 120. How do you get back to my stove? Hundreds of miles away, a defiant figure faces the screen of his electro-televisor. So Merlin failed me and let those fools defeat him. They were lucky. That's it. Just plain lucky. But the hand has yet four fingers left. Yes, I've still got four aces up my sleeve. And my next ace is the needle. He won't fail me, not when it comes to defeating his worst enemies. 
this dust-bangled kid and stripesy. The Green Arrow hits the mark every month in more fun comics. Green Arrow. Now we open with one of those two-thirds splash pages with the action starting on the bottom. The action has a really good illustration of what Green Arrow and Speedy look like and in their color-coordinated togs, tunic and pants, buccaneer boots. Green Arrow's, uh, of course, is green, uh, trimmed with red gloves and uh, the red buccaneer boots and a green feather. In his, and on his green cap. Speedy has sort of the same arrangements. He doesn't have buccaneer boots. He has basically a straight-up kind of boots with a V in the front. Tunic and pants are red, trimmed with yellow. And, of course, he's a little bit smaller. And he has a green feather coming out of his cap. And we are in Death Valley, one of the hottest places on Earth, the Mojave Desert of Eastern California. The lowest point of elevation in North America, 282 feet below sea level. So this is going to be an interesting place for our battle. It's hot and dry here. There's not a lot of people live. It has had a bit of a past as a mining frontier. If you ever bought Borax, I was going to say cereal, but that wouldn't be good. Uh, Borax laundry detergent. It's mined right here from Borax. I have a of one of those Borax wagons and teams, and you may have seen it. They, they actually called the product 20 Mule Team Borax, pulled by uh, two strings of 10 mules uh, abreast. Three very, very heavy wagons and a water tank. In I actually have a friend who, believe it or not, collects wagons, and he has wheels from that he bought in Death Valley off of one of those old wagons. They are massive. Whenever I'm helping him with them, I'm always scared of dropping that thing went over center because it would probably kill me if I dropped it on myself. But at any rate, you didn't come here for the 20 Mule Borax podcast. Uh, we're on some very much faster things. We're in the aeroplane. As I said, it's a car. It's a roadster. It's zipping along, and I guess they have come from Gotham City. I would imagine they took Route 66 to get here. And I don't see Vigilante anywhere in sight, and I'm not sure where he'd sit. So uh, I hope he's made other arrangements. As the aeroplane, unquote, speeds along, they get to the shadow of a airplane. So now that we're past that confusion, Green Arrow knows that this is their foe, the Professor Merlin. This has no relation to Merlin the Archer, who we're familiar with as a member of the League of Assassins, who Green Arrow tangled with in the early 1970s from time to time, and we've seen Merlin the Archer, also known as the Professor, New Earth or Earth One Adventure. So perhaps you could consider this Professor Merlin the Earth 2 version of that Merlin. And of course, he uh, that Merlin figures prominently in the Arrowverse, in the Arrow uh, TV show uh, played by John Barrowman. But enough of that. He's basically uh, seems to be a bit of a master planner, got a bit of a goatee on him, wears a monocle, because so you know he's evil. He's wearing a monocle. And he drops a bomb on Green Arrow and Speedy. They also uh, drop a bomb on a bridge, and this is where it gets interesting. And I guess Green Arrow knows his aeroplane really well because he knows he's going to be able to jump this very deep chasm even though the bridge isn't there. This is uh, why sometimes in the commentaries, here we are in the 1940s, people, and sensibilities uh, for kids reading this, and sensibilities for the writers writing them are very, very different. And we see a very, very unfortunate remark that Speedy makes. Uh, He hasn't been raised well. 
and he basically sees that the chasm is so deep that he can see people from the nation of China down there. And that is, of course, not the word he uses. And I actually used that in the audio play. I struggled with whether to do that or not, but I went ahead with it. And uh, I'm just canceling, saying it here. It's just more of the typical sort of uh, stereotypical thoughtlessness that you will see in regarding to racial issues here at this point in time in the Golden Age. Coming years, it doesn't get much better. You see things like this in the 60s, 70s, even in the 80s at times. What is interesting, after Speedy makes his remark, a green arrow comes back with, what do we need with wing? Actually, he says wings. And I don't know if that's supposed to be a comeback for their t- to chat about Crimson Avengers sidekick Wing, who is, well, let's face it, Chinese. Or maybe Green Arrow's just bragging about his car. So maybe this Green Arrow, there's two Green Arrows, a bit of a loudmouth. <laughs> Green Arrow and Speedy both allow, carry the a bit of the loudmouthiness of their Earth One counterparts. Now, George Papp is doing the artwork here, and I'm, I was remiss in saying at the beginning, George Papp is the originating artist on Green Arrow, and Mort Weisinger, of course, was the uh, originating writer. So we've got the writer-artist team to ever work on Green Arrow in this story. And they meet up with our old-timer, who I guess is a bit of a tycoon. When I look at him, you kind of want to just see the stereotypical old Westerner. I see a little bit of a James Colburn in this guy, just by the way he's, he's drawn. Um, there's just a little bit more style to him. Now, we get a lot of action, and you see a lot of what Green Arrow and Speedy can do with this bow and arrow, and they're not just accuracy and trick arrows. They do a lot of wire work. At one point, they've got a whistling arrow, so that kind of reminds you of Yondu, the archer in Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, I feel for one villain here, he gets a moose head dropped on on top of him. I've lifted these moose heads into place in my time in museum work, and they are not light at all. So I'm not sure if this guy hasn't had his neck snapped. The old-timer, he's got a bit of a phobia about cold. He must have gotten very, very used to Death Valley. This is probably the reason he came here, probably came from, oh, I don't know, Canada (laughs) or Minnesota or someplace like that. Just doesn't want to die in the cold. And that is something that happens to you. And you get it to a certain point of the time of life, and you just look out at a snowstorm, and you go, I'm sick of this. Happened to me on my first trip to Hawaii. I came home, and I wasn't happy to come home to winter. And, of course, uh, we have to always have this stereotypical thing of the heroes get captured. They always have the ineptness of the henchmen who forget that uh, these guys have legs and forget to take away their bows and arrows. So they're able to string their bow and arrow with their legs only, with their hands tied up. And, of course, they're accurate. This is why they're the Green Arrow. You always wonder about these uh, comic book archers like Green Arrow, Hawkeye, Yondu, etc. They never miss. Well, this is their shtick. This is what they do. That's why they're superheroes. You don't take on Thanos with a stick and a string and not be good at it. And, of course, there's a lot of, like I say, aerial work to be done from here at different points in times. And they're using the bow sort of as a zip line across canyons. And the stereotypical thing, you know how to immobilize gangsters, just knock them on their butts, especially onto cactus. You see this more more often than not. I'm sure we'll see it a lot in as we progress into our vigilante stories in the coming years. Now, Professor Merlin, he must, he's, I think his, uh, his specialty must be explosives. 
Uh, we've seen bombs, and now he's got dynamite. But Professor Merlin didn't take into account of what the impact of an, or concussion of an explosion might do inside of an old mine, and he basically brings the works on down top of himself. But Green Arrow and Speedy have gotten the old-timer out of the mine, and he just wants to get back to his cabin and his, his good old cook stove. Now, here's the interesting part. Every one of these chapters um, will have its own framing sequence within as the villain checks in to see how they're doing. Now, how does the hand, this godfather-type Don Corleone guy in Gotham City, do this? Of course, he's got a satellite electro-televisor. You heard that. He's got an electro-televisor that is showing him in full color on a screen as big as this 2008 MyMac that I'm reading off of this that shows the aeroplane uh, roaring out of Death Valley. How, uh, where his camera is hidden, I don't know. Boy, this is one strategic guy. Maybe he has drones. And if he's got uh, satellite cameras and drones and he can watch television across the country in full color, you have to wonder why this guy isn't working for Hitler or Tojo. He's uh, not happy about the defeat, but he knows that next is the needle. So we're going to move the action to Panama. The Star Spangled Kid. That TNT team of American Avengers, the star-spangled kid in Stripesy, are off again, once more engaged in a stirring, relentless combat with their implacable foe, the Needle, possessed of a fiendishly foolproof blueprint for banditry prepared by the King of Knaves, the Hand. It seems that the tall tower of treachery will have scant opposition in this thrill-a-moment drama whose setting is laid in the very shadows of a vital link in our national defense, the Panama Canal. Outside the pretentious Pemberton Mansion, as dusk falls, I still think Sylvester should not take this vacation trip to Panama. But since he insists, see that you take good care of him, Dugan. If my plans materialize, Mother, I shall return with more rare rock specimens to add to my collection. And won't that be thrilling? Bah! Presently. So what I can't understand, kid, is why the hand should have warned us that his minion, the needle, is about to pull some crooked hijinks in the neighborhood of the Panama Canal. Yeah, let's just be glad that he did warn us, Stripesy. As Stripesy presses a concealed button on the dashboard, sections of the auto's framework spin and whirl until the stayed limousine becomes the streamlined star rocket racer. Just like magic, an auto gyro propeller rises out of the rear deck, then up hurdles the racer. Up! Up and away! So the needle works for the hand? Here's where we put the finger on the hand. Straight up into the substratosphere rises the strange craft. Then... The auto-gyro attachment is too low or slow for a long trip, so... So I press another button and... The auto-gyro blades are retracted, wings sprout, and a battery of rocket tubes roar into life, and... The racer becomes a rocket ship. And boy, can she travel. On through the dark of night, the fleet ship travels down the eastern seaboard. And out over the Caribbean Sea as the tropical day dawns with startling swiftness. Down there, the Republic of Panama. Panama! That's 
not all. I see someone who seems to be in distress. The telescope reveals a bound, helpless figure aboard a drifting vessel. Pontoons swing into position, and the star rocket racer alights on the ocean near the drifting vessel. Careful, kid. That man needs our help. But as the star-spangled kid approaches the helpless figure, it suddenly whirls erect. The muzzle of a deadly needle gun stares mockingly into the kid's face. The needle! If I say so myself, I certainly trapped you neatly. Join us, or your juvenile friend perishes, Stripesy. Nothing else I can do. <laughs> and now to make this little picture complete, I'll tie up both of you with your own steel light rope. The hand warned me that you'd be on my trail. So I plan to beat you to the punch. Remember, Neil, it's the final punch that always counts. And I'm putting in a reservation for that punch right now. Loosening a specially planned trapdoor, the needle causes the ocean's water to pour into the ground. Quit your kidding, fools. You're going to die now and you know it. If it wasn't for the steelite rope, I'd... Calm yourself, Stripesy. Anger won't help. <laughs> According to the hand's blueprinted instructions... I'm to drop in and Claude Brighton at Embassy Hall this evening. Goodbye, fool. Sorry I can't remain to witness your death, but I've work to do. Reaching the Embassy Hall, the needle resorts to a ruse. From a place of concealment, he flips a coin near one of the detectives on guard before the entrance. Leave it to the hand to think of a clever little trick like this. What? The detective deserts his post to annex the coin. And the needle slips inside unnoticed. Price of admission. One dime when you know how. Meanwhile, I don't get it. Here we're both about to die a horrible death and you just laugh. What? You'll learn. Foresight, Stripesy. You see, when the needle tied me, I had the presence of mind to flex my muscles. Since he departed, I've been straining at my bonds and now look. One hand is free. Good work, kid, but hurry. Working swiftly, desperately, the kid releases Stripesy's hands from behind his back. There you are. Swell. Now to get the steel light off my feet, then I'll help you finish untying yourself. But as Stripesy unties the bonds that shackle his feet, the boat unexpectedly capsizes. Kid! Kid! Swimming desperately underwater, Stripesy succeeds in seizing his friend, then strikes out for the water's surface, quick, before he drowns. Later, aboard the racer, Stripesy frees the star-spangled kid of the last of his bond. Phew. For a second, kid, I thought you was a goner. I'm perfectly okay now, and we better lose no time in getting to the embassy hall if we're to aid Brighton, that famous inventor. Meanwhile, Claude Brighton discovers a mysterious note in one of the sandwiches served. What's this? Come to the flower pot in the room's east corner alone if you wish to learn of a plot to steal your new ray gun weapon. As the scientist obeys the note's instructions, The immediate problem is to get out of here with Brighton, unobserved. That's something the hand left for me to figure out. Bad Stripesy and I have to get in there and warn Claude Brighton. The needle is out to get him. It's the star-spangled kid and Stripesy. Maybe they know what they're talking about, and maybe they don't. I'll question them alone. The sharp-faced detective leads them into one of the hall's rooms. Now, let me hear your yarn again. There isn't time for all this red tape. Restrain yourself, Stripesy. I'm sure this man will cooperate once he knows the whole story. And those are all the details. Will you help us? Well, now I know. I'll have to think it over. I'm sick of this stalling. 
I'm going to warn Brighton whether this thick skulled cop wants us to or not. I know you're not. You're staying right here, and oh, what a fool I've been. Of course, this man is a hireling of the hand. No fooling. All right, my friends. I was planted here in order to make things tough for you should you show up to annoy the needle. Make yourselves comfortable. You're going to have a long wait while the needle has plenty of time to get away with this Brighton. At the very moment, leaping through a high window, his unconscious captive slung over his shoulder, the needle hurdles over the unsuspecting guards, heads to the limb of a nearby tree. Later, as Brighton revives in his own car... You're going to take over the wheel now. We'll drive you into a laboratory's plant. And if you signal the watch when you die, get me? Uh, I'll get you. Later, inside Brighton's private office at the Brighton Experimental Laboratories... That red gun is mine! It can be a terrible force for evil in the wrong hands. Hey, mind if we sit down, K-28? I don't know what you mean by K-28, but you can both be seated at no tricks. Nothing like relaxation, eh? But Stripesy has recognized K-28 as the kids signal for one of their secret code-fistic maneuvers as the partners in peril begin to seat themselves as they both unexpectedly catapult the chairs at their captor. Nice teamwork, Stripesy. Thanks, pal. Into the adjoining room hurtled the American Avengers. Where's Claude Brighton? That's odd. He was sitting just here a minute ago. He's gone. That means the needle snatched him. Let's go, kid. Meanwhile, as the needle emerges from the plant with Brighton... Now that you've got the ray gun, what are you going to do with me? Not a thing if you don't look back. Get out of this car and start running. But as Claude Brighton obeys his captor's instructions, the needle deliberately aims his needle gun at the fleeing man's back. An easy target. A barrage of deadly needles spew forth from the vicious weapon, but as they threaten to annihilate the helpless man, a bullet-like object whizzes down between the gunman and the intended victim. It's the Star Rocket Racer. The needle's careening off the racer's bulletproof side. I'd like to careen my fist off his chin. The racer whirls, and a claw-like projection reaches down and seizes the other car and carries it aloft. Here's where the needle is interviewed by my knuckles. He's going. Must have jumped out before we got the auto very far into the air. But what's that on the floor? Why, it's the blueprint for banditry supplied to the needle by the hand. Our long-legged friend must have been so anxious to part from our company that he dropped it in his rush to get away. The kid rejoined Stripesy. My gosh, it says here that he's going to destroy the Panama Canal locks from atop the uncompleted bando building near the canal with the stolen ray gun. Later, he's going to sell the ray gun to a foreign power. What are we waiting for? Let's go. Through the sky, zooms the streaking star rocket racer in a tense race against time. But meanwhile, scaling the abandoned building, the needle blasts a ray gun discharged toward nearby buildings. This demonstration alone should convince foreign bidders that the secret of the ray gun is worth fantastic sums. In response, the mighty structures vibrate violently, then crash to earth in crumbling ruins. Ah! Now devastatingly powerful this ray gun is, and it's mine, oh mine! And now the destruction of the Panama Canal! The tall tower of treachery levels his lethal weapon at one of the nearby canal locks. A few more moments and my goal will be accomplished. The hand should be very pleased.
Out toward the canal, Locke stabs the deadly ray. Preliminary vibrations shake the lock in anticipation of the violent destruction to come. An unexpected interruption. Down plunges the Star Rocket Racer. Autogyro blades whirling to remain stationary in the ray's very path. What? The Star Spangled Kid? Lucky thing for us, kid, that the racer and glossolite shield are both invulnerable to shells and rays. A tribute to your genius, Stripesy. But the needle himself is not so fortunate. Deflected back by the racer's ray-proof shield, the deadly rays ricochet, causing the supports beneath the tall tower of treachery to crumble. Down topples the kingpin of crime toward inevitable death. Rolling back the glassolite shield, the partners in peril dive the racer down after the plummeting needle. He's not worth saving, if you ask me. Just the same. Same, Stripesy. He's going to pay the legal penalty for his crimes. Hurtling a strand of steel light out into space, the kid snags the falling figure. Threading the needle. Boing! Shortly afterward... Here's the man you really want, and the sharp-faced detective who tried to restrain us is an imposter. Arrest him. He stole my ray gun. Still later, switching the racer back to the staid limousine, the kid and Stripes, he once again resumed their identities as Sylvester Pemberton and Pat Dugan. I'm afraid the hand won't like what we did to his hirelings. Yeah, but why did the hand warn us? That puzzles me. Meanwhile, the hand has been following the needle's progress, or the lack of it, on the screen of his electro-televisio apparatus. The needle failed. Failed where I, the hand, would have succeeded. And now, his will be the fate of all lawbreakers who fail. Throwing a switch, the hand contacts the next of his hirelings. Big Caesar. Merlin and the Needle have both proven unworthy of the trust that I reposed in them. Does that frighten you, Big Caesar? Me scared? I don't scare easily, Hand. And with the foolproof plans you give me, my job is a cinch. And it'll be a blackout for the Crimson Avenger, too. When I blackout Broadway. Three complete Star Spangled Kid adventures every month in Star Spangled Comics. Chapter 3, The Star-Spangled Kid. And we open up to Hal Sherman art, and we have a credit here. Very unique thing for the uh, Golden Age. The Star-Spangled Kid, his Star-Spangled logo, by Jerry Siegel and Hal Sherman. And of course, Jerry Siegel, originator of Superman. And also the uh, creator, uh, with Hal, of this character. So once again, we have an original Art. Uh, Jerry Siegel, you probably know as also the creator of Superman, which he infamously, he and his partner Joe Schuster, sold off for $130. But that's $2,000 adjusted for inflation and such. So, oh yeah, he got a bit of a raw deal on that. So Jerry did get make a lifetime career of basically doing work for hire. And he did create a few more other characters, and uh, which unfortunately I don't think he made much for royalties on. And it's too bad he's not around today because um, I would hope his estate maybe has a claim on the Stargirl show. Definitely a bit of uh, roots in that show. Uh, to Sylvester Pemberton and, of course, Pat Dugan, who is Stripes. Now, Hal Sherman is the originating artist of the Star-Spangled Kid, and he... Uh, 
actually ended up with quite a bit of a checkered career. Didn't seem to do a lot in comics. Uh, it's interesting, his career in the 1950s, he created cartoons for cocktail napkins, of all things. And uh, as you can imagine, a few of those cocktail nab napkins, you know, back in that madman era, had a few... Uh, Risque gag, and he uh, also drew a cartoon for Nudnik, which is a 1950s cartoon about nudists. Very, very interesting career. And uh, things like bowling cartoons for something called Alley Whoops and Pennant Laugh. So he didn't get a lot, a great career in uh, comic books or such like that, but uh, he does seem to be more of a cartoonist, and you can see that in this art that he has in Star Spangled Kid. So, you know, no judgment about what he did later on. It's just uh, he seems more adjusted to exaggerated figures on this chapter. And this will be one of the few portions, I think the only, that is not uh, written by Mort Weisinger. Mort is doing everything except Star Spangled Kid and uh, our next chapter, The Crimson Avenger. Hi, everyone. Week later, Ranger Gord jumping in to tell you that I may have some doubt about whether Mort Wesinger contributed writing to the Shining Knight portion as well. Just see later on down the road when we get down to Sir Justin's chapter. Thanks. Bye. Star Spangled Kid and Stripes. He, well, of course, is uh, the kid. He, he's very privileged. Parents are John and Gloria Pemberton. And uh, as I recall, they are bank banking tycoons or made their money at least in banking. Think John Rockefeller and then Gloria, Gloria Vanderbilt. Wink, wink, wink. So they're trying to make you think of that old money, new money sort of arrangement as to what the Pembertons are all about. And let's just say they don't miss too many meals. Sylvester, of course, has had a very privileged uh, upbringing and probably a private education. And he's very, very interested in a lot of things, a lot of very scientific sorts of things. Uh, he's not going to turn himself into Peter Parker or anything like that. But he's a smart-mouthed 15 or 16-year-old. And um, as I read some of the previous stories in, in Star Spangled Comics, him and Papa don't seem to get along. But Mama thinks he's just fine. That huge hulking chauffeur is around to take care of him. She'll be happy to let him out on the odd little adventure now and then. And, of course, neither parent knows that this pair, once they're out of, out of eye shot, are basically putting on the flag and fighting Nazis and criminals. So as long as he exhibits his superior brain power to Mama, he basically does what he wants. And that's going to include, in this story, embarking on a continent-long car ride to Panama with Pat Dugan. So there's a bit of trust in Pat. Pat himself, very large man, and as we see in these, uh, and you can say because comics, but as we can see, he's not just a mechanic, he must have an engineering background, say in power engineering, and for some reason he's uh, relegated to the, uh, the role of the chauffeur, which has, you know, led to this team of star-spangled kid and stripesy, and of course the kid... You know, you put the Captain America and Bucky on its ear. The kid is the leader of the team, and Stripesy plays cleanup. The kid, he wears basically the flag. He wears the corner of the flag covered in stars. I don't know if anybody's ever counted the stars to see if he's got all 48 on that shirt and hood. Uh, that's probably a job for a mathematician. I'm looking at you, Dave McElveney, and I'll expect a report on that. And Stripesy wears the... 13 stripes, boxers sort of a 
shirt, you know, a, a sweater kind of a thing, just with the broad red and white stripes. So we open up with the stereotypical splash in the corner. We see the Star Rocket Racer coming to the rescue over top of the Panama Canal which the needle is shooting at the star-spangled kid as he falls off of a, one of the structures atop the canal. Uh, we open with John and Gloria Pemberton. He's telling Mom and Dad that he's going to Panama. and uh, The chauffeur, Pat Dugan, is going to chaperone him. Now, when they head out, they get into the streamlined star rocket racer. Just looks like a... An extremely uh, interesting late 1930s, early 1940s roadster. But it seems to have a very strange exhaust pipe. And as we'll find out, once they're out of eye shot, headed down the highway, Stripesy puts up a propeller, sort of like an autogyro. An autogyro, kids, is an early form of a helicopter. That gives him some lift. And then we find out what that exhaust is for. And, of course... It's a rocket, very early sort of a rocket. Now, I'm sure Stripes, he wasn't teaching Werner von Braun anything, but he might have been looking at Goddard, who came up with the early liquid oxygen gasoline rockets in 1926. And as we know, uh, Mr. Werner von Braun sent a few of his rockets around 1945, 1944, over to London, and eventually as part of Operation Paperclip, will come to work for the Americans and be the project uh, lead in what will finally put a man on the moon. But that's a bit of a distraction. Of course, because comics, we have a, a huge lapse of time. Suddenly, we're at Panama. Panama! We're off the coast, and we see a drifting sailing ship with the, uh, the sails are all down, and the kid jumps out, thinking that the sailor needs help. And, of course, what do we see is the needle... And that's when we see another one of Hal Sherman's exaggerated characters. And I'm sure he was watching some Three Stooges. This guy's got the head of Larry of the Three Stooges. Larry Fine. Large, very wild mane of skirt going from ear to ear around the back. And, of course, the rest of his body, very thin, very lithe. You know, he probably stands about oh, six foot five, six foot six or so. And basically, it looks like a human pipe cleaner. So... Hence his name, The Needle. And he arms himself with, uh, what do we call, a needle gun, of course. And he manages to put this gun to, to Sylvester Pemberton's head as the kid. Uh, Stripesy has uh, basically brought the racer, I guess, down into the ocean and basically forced uh, Pat Dugan to surrender. And he's tied them up with an invention of Pat's called Steelite Rope, some form of steel-laced uh, cable that they use for swinging and such zip lining you name it so once tied up on the ship the needle he hits the ocean and he swims to shore and he's got some confederates in panama city now why are we in the panama canals well the history of it of course goes back started to be built in the 1880s as a route to go from the pacific to the atlantic and vice versa uh, previous you had to go around the rim of south america you know say if you wanted to go from new york to san francisco you know to take anything say from england to japan which is a, obviously a very circuitous route and there was this very very narrow isthmus of land that if it was dug out and built into a lock and canal system that would work out now the french uh, their their efforts went bankrupt and the efforts were eventually taken up by the united states to the point where teddy roosevelt actually annexed a piece of land from uh, colombia and turned it into an independent nation of panama, panama! 
purely for the express purposes of building this canal. And of course, over the years, it uh, down, shipping costs down, and you know was a great boon to uh, worldwide commerce. Sometimes called seven wonder, one of the seven wonders of the modern world. Now, once we get into World War II, it's a very important target for the Japanese because what's going to happen is when they hit Pearl as Pearl Harbor, the wreckage of Pearl Harbor, which is the, the wreckage is cooling as kids are reading this comics. And so this is a very, very timely um, sort of a thing. It's been recognized. The United States did fortify Panama. Uh, the Japanese never did attack it, but it was very important in being able to bring warships, say, from Norfolk, Virginia, and taking and transferring it over to the Pacific Ocean and then um, thus to Pearl Harbor and then on to the various theaters of the Pacific War. And this Panama just seems to be also the home of, of Professor Claude Brighton, who has developed a ray gun weapon. Boy, what are the odds that uh, there's a ray gun weapon in Panama just when the hand wants to attack it? So we're assuming the hand is probably going to cause a, cause a bit of ruckus for the world and uh, probably no end of trouble for the United States as the war progresses. Well, the needle gets this ray gun, and we've heard the shenanigans with the various gangsters, one who is a turncoat, uh, pose, a turncoat posing as a detective, and we get to the point where the needle is going to attack the Panama Canal and destroy it with this ray gun. This fabulous ray gun is going to be able to go through the thick concrete walls and the dirt embankments of the Panama Canal. But fortunately, fortunately, it's not enough to break the Star Rocket Racer. And the Star Rocket Racer with Pat at the wheel seems to be faster than this beam of light. So that's Stripesy. Uh, I don't know why he isn't working for the War Department. And then, of course, we're back to the hand is defeated. Sylvester and Pat, they get back into their civilian tugs for the long ride back to New York City or wherever it is they're coming from. And the hand, of course, is looking at that electro-televisio apparatus. Yes, anywhere in the world, he can turn on his TV and have a look at what's going on at any point in time. Very disappointed with the needle's progress and his capture. The needle gives hands the next ball over to what basically looks like a, a New York street tough by the name of Big Caesar. And then we're off to visit the Crimson Avenger. The Crimson Avenger! The Gay White Way! Glamorous gateway to happiness, winking lights, jubilant, carefree crowds, lilting laughter, and tooting traffic. Then all at once, darkness, tense and terrifying for Big Caesar. Sinister emissary of the hand has launched a blackout over Broadway. Into this holocaust of horror strikes the Crimson Avenger with unreplanting energy until it is lights on in Times Square but lights out for Big Caesar. The railroad terminal and the New York Limited discharges its passengers. We made good time. Didn't want to risk flying because the hand might have anticipated that and tampered with the plane. Imagine the trouble he went to, putting this ad in the personal column of every paper in the country to get my attention. Most important, he tried to contact you to try to stop crime. Personal column. Attention, Crimson Avenger. Challenge you to thwart the most daring robbery ever committed on Broadway. The hand. If only we can put our hands on it. But the whole thing is, is as elusive as the mist. Like Begu run into fire, he asked for trouble, and he get it. 
Take your bag, sir. The porter guides them out of the vast depot to a waiting vehicle. Thank you, sir. Times Square, and don't spare the horses. We go off for fast. We go off fast. Mistakes be very mad. Yes, we're speeding, but in the wrong direction. Say, driver. Like an uncoiled jack-in-the-box, a menacing figure suddenly springs from beside the chauffeur. What? No, Avenger. We're going right. One false move and I'll send you in another direction. With one lightning movement, heads, I win. With the Avenger at the wheel, the cab thunders off towards Times Square. The cab screeches to a sudden stop, and the terrified driver flees. But an honorable ancestor say no unfortunate has three bags under his eyes. <laughs> so, this is Broadway. Yes, and somewhere, somehow, Big Caesar is getting ready to pull his coup. All at once, lights blink out and Broadway is blanketed by darkness. But as quickly as they went out, the lights flash on again. Very strange. Maybe all black test. A, a blackout ex a blackout experiment? I hardly think so. The wire services didn't report any such thing. I've got it. Wing. That was the blackout over Broadway. But why? What was the motive? Can it possibly be connected with the hand? While only a few feet away in the middle of Broadway. This is a cinch right in the heart of the city. No one would ever dream of looking for us here. The blackout worked perfectly. We've got to give the hand a, a hand. These wires lead to the West Side Powerhouse, which lights up Broadway. This hideout is so obvious, we're not even suspected, even by the Crimson Avenger. Even if he's gotten this far. But I think the red caps planted in the terminal detoured him. Look at your elbow. It's got red paint. You must have brushed against something. He's still wet fresh paint. And a fresh clue. That sign was just painted. And come here. Look at this. Doesn't it strike you odd? What? I don't understand. The hands and faces of those men are clean. Their overalls are new. And they are working, so it is proven. They are not WPA laborers. I think I'll have a word with them. Say, you, down there. Big Caesar, look who's here. A Crimson Avenger. Holy cow. Those mugs let him get away. Let me out of here. Stand where you are. It's gonna be all right. I got everything fixed just in case he showed up. Ain't I gonna? Yeah, why don't you give me a hand? I want to get up there. I'm flattered by your recognition, officer. Mind if I ask you something? Don't they know me too? Wait a minute, what's this guy doing dressed like that? What's he advertising? Has he got a license? Oh, you've got something there, buddy. I'll say I have this. Arrest him. I'll be down to the precinct later to press charges. Oh, better come along. Disorderly conduct is an offense. Hold on. He's tricking you. He's got something up his sleeve. And if you don't get in, I'll show you what I've got up my sleeve. Now come along. I come, but under protest. There they go, boy. Was that a smooth idea of yours? Everything's going our way tonight, eh, Big Caesar? And the real fun's just about to begin. One minute to nine. Let's go. With a frenzied laugh, the Lord of the Lawless, Big Caesar, snaps the current carrying wires. And once again, Broadway is plunged into black, foreboding darkness. Oh, what happened? Mary! Wh where are you? Paralyzed by fear, 
Shocked pedestrians fall easy prey to the various vandals who'd been awaiting the signal of darkness at their post. And now begins the wholesale holdup. Now is unleashed the terror of Times Square. Confronted by absolute darkness, the police car suddenly stops. Hey, what's this? Just what I've been trying to warn you. That was Big Caesar. He planned this. He set the stage and pulled the switch to begin mass robberies. Good gravy, you were going to prevent them. And we pulled you away. Well, we can't drive back, it'd be too dangerous. Sure, we might be running down people in the street. Everybody must be running around like crazy. Well, words trickle from honorable officials' mouths, gold flows from others' pockets. So, if you'll let me borrow this and excuse my dust, I'll be off. With wings sticking as close as your shadow. Meanwhile, in the west side powerhouse, men work frantically to restore the current. It's no use, boss. The main line's been cut. But we gotta do something. Get over to Times Square. How are we going to go? We can't take a chance driving. Then walk or crawl, but get over there even if it takes all night. Through unnerved mobs and snarled traffic, weave, wing, and the Crimson Avenger with a flashlight cutting a path. We're getting closer. Just let me get my hands on Big Caesar and I'll cut him down to a runt. A mastermind of evil, the hand. <laughs> it wouldn't be most delightful to amputate that menacing limb. Mike Caesar, look, it's the Avenger. And that Chinese. They got away. That's my cue. Good night, Big Caesar, but don't think it's going to be a good night. Scooping up a flare, the Avenger hurls it at the fleeing, frightened fugitives. Strike! Hey, drop the... I am dropping it where it belongs. We're face to face at last, Big Caesar. And I don't enjoy the sight at all. Restore the lights. Sure, if you say so, Avenger. But first, here's mud in your eye. Get him, boys, while he can't see. Let me at him. Everything's going black tonight, even the crimson's eyes. In the melee, the watchful wing has been overlooked. Suddenly, he poses for flight, then east-west meets with a bang. Hello, wing hover trick. Very good. Let me demonstrate. We don't waste words. We just go into action. Come on, boys. That's my language, too. Here's a pipe dream for you, brother. Er Aha! Be careful. Don't get your wires crossed. Ah, burning up. Look at these bolts. Have you got a charge account? Look out behind you. This will make it hot for you. It's not the heat. It's the stupidity that bothers me. <laughs> oh. I'll bash your brains out. Hey! Honorable parents, name me Wing because I fly. Ah, a clean sweep. Hell, you dug your bed. Now lie in it. Curious spectators that gathered to watch cheer the triumph of the Avenger and Wing. Hooray, Avenger! boy. That did it. Dexterously, the Avenger manipulates the wires. I hope it works. There is a faint hum, a crackling spark. And all at once, the bulbs of Broadway flash to life, and there is light. Vengeance and anger adding fuel to their wrath, the victims of the vandals now set forth back upon their assailants. There they are, huddled like the rats they are, and in their hole. Why, you, you must be the Crimson Avenger. And I am Wing, but we will overlook your ignorance this time. Let's go change our clothes. I know of a swell chop suey place, and there's a certain movie... Honorable ancestors, forgive me. I do not like Chinese food. I have something else I would like to do. I have heard one can buy the Brooklyn Bridge. Meanwhile, at the mansion of the Hand... Fools! Fools! 
first Professor Merlin, then the Needle, and now even Big Caesar. Can they do nothing even with my brain? Can it be that even I, <coughs> no, the Red Dragon will prove that the Hand is triumphant over all? Right, and the Red Dragon is itching for a chance to tangle with that shining knight. So relax, boss. Your worries are over. The Crimson Avenger appears every month in Detective Comics. Chapter 4, The Crimson Avenger and Wing. So we open with another one of these three-quarter splashes of The Crimson Avenger here by Jack Letty. And he's got a, given himself a very large byline uh, right on top of one of those Broadway signs of one of those big Times Square neon signs. So uh, Jack found a very clever way to work himself into the artwork here where he couldn't be really whited out if some editor decided he didn't need that credit. But that's okay. Good. I'm good for Jack. The Crimson Avenger, as we have said, the E. Nelson Bed Bridwell bio that uh, we read earlier, was created by uh, Jim Chambers, and uh, I didn't tell you at that point in time it was Jim Changer, Chambers, but I did tell you about uh, him being a cloaked mystery man. Hat, mask, you know, think the shadow, Green Hornet, or the original uh, Sandman with the gas mask. It was the, and Wing was basically his chauffeur. He wore a green chauffeur's uniform and uh, took him around to various mysteries and crimes. Of course, that was 1938. That was a very, very in-vogue sort of a character. But by 1941, things are getting different. His uh, pulp inspirations, uh, we've, we've switched from pulps into comics. Kids aren't reading the pulps anymore. Um, that's more of an adult, you know, juvenile sort of a thing. And um, so we want uh, bright colors. Uh, we've already had uh, the streamlining of Batman, who also was very dark and shadowy. And But by 1941, as we introduced Robin, this brightly colored sidekick, and the concept of the sidekick is introduced, you know, Batman's smiling a little bit more. Uh, thank God he's gotten over that. And uh, the whole costume and the whole... Uh, the whole work inside uh, comics is starting to look brighter, and we want more skin-tight outfits. And we've also had the Sandman himself revamped in Adventure Comics. He's gone from his suit and cloak and hat and gas mask, reworking done first by Mort Weisinger and then later by uh, streamlined by Jack Kirby. He's got a sand kick named Sandy flying around in sand-colored outfits, uh, purple and gold. And there are no cloaks and there are no gas masks. So, you know, the whole style of superheroing has changed. And I know that uh, now we're kind of, we think that uh, the whole noir look, you know, the whole trench coats and, and hats, that that looks very, very cool. Well, in the 1940s, they weren't thinking that. They, they were thinking times have changed. So Crimson Avenger has changed into a red acrobat's outfit with yellow trunks and, and boots trimming it and a, and a yellow fin on top. And Wing, well, he's not chauffeuring anymore. He's got a very similar costume with the colors reversed, yellow and red. Though I often notice that uh, Wing's trunks look more like swimming trunks than they do uh, sort of the underwear style that you normally think of with uh, superheroes. The Crimson Avenger and Wing have found a very novel way to get from the Seven Soldiers meeting in Gotham City to New York City. They've taken the train in their costumes. I think that's just great. And 
good on Amtrak for getting you there. And they're pulling into, uh, I guess I assume it's Pennsylvania Station. I was going to say Grand Central, but I guess it would be Penn Station at this point in time. Sorry, I've never, I've, I've trained all over the United States, but I've never trained into New York City, so I assume it's Penn. And, of course, he, he gets his first lead from, get where, the personal columns. Of course, there's newspapers always delivered on trains. The Crimson Avenger would be look, would be scouring that, even the classifieds, to be looking for, you know, what his uh, what his quarry might be up. And we get, uh, he, he even takes a taxi. Yeah, he flags a red cap that gets his bags, but uh, the taxi driver and uh, a guy in front of the seat, this is a bit of an ambush. So we have a bit of a... A fight in right inside the taxi cab. James Bond would love this. Just think from Russia with love and the train fight. And, you know, I have to say this about Wing. I was really kind of cringing as to how he was going to be portrayed. Sorry, certainly his coloring isn't real sympathetic. Uh, Wing, he's got that terrible coppery look. I won't say he speaks in a pigeon. He does get his R's and his L's mixed up. I've tried not to copy that in the radio drama. Though his his speech is a little stilted, and I never ever noticed that in any of the older ones where he was uh, the old cloak and chauffeur, Crimson Avenger and Wing. He said, you know, the honorable ancestor sort of a thing. But I often see that he often gets the last word in a lot of fights and a lot of conversations. Um, You know, it's offensive by a modern standard, of course, but he does serve to dish out a lot of sarcastic barbs and comments through this whole thing. And I'm starting to get into Lake Wing a lot. Too bad he was treated so badly uh, by the creators of the Seven Soldiers. And, of course, boom, out goes the, we get a blackout. And this is probably a smart thing to do as far as a, a crime is concerned, uh, especially on Broadway. You know, we think of Broadway and we think of downtown Times Square, you know, as all lit up. You know, New Year's Eve, you know, when we actually had New Year's Eve, you know, the sort of my daughter was there once. She said you could read a newspaper in the middle of the night just off the light off of the uh, off of the street. It's very interesting. It's not like here Big Caesar has just broken into a power station. um, He's actually had a a hole dug. And uh, it's interesting that the signage and the barricades are all WPA. That is his work. It's one of Franklin Roosevelt's acronyms for some of the various agencies he set up during the administration his administration to try to alleviate the depression and the WPA is a Keynesian way of putting people back to work and to try to get the economy moving again on public works that needed to be done and here we've uh, Big Caesar has used the cover of the WPA to dig a hole to access the uh, the main cables here for downtown Manhattan and accessing the cables he's cut them so our first fight begins right inside that hole or our observation begins in the hole. Our our first fight begins at this work site, first at the top of the hole, and we see Big Caesar cuts the wires, and it paralyzes the, the city, which Big Caesar uses to start basically start a crime spree. He's got pickpockets. He's got people blackjacking. Safes are being cracked. Bank vaults are being raided. People are being mugged right in the middle of the street. We get jewelry stores windows being smashed and there's no alarms there's no power there's no light and the police seem to be a bit paralyzed Um, they're scared to even drive out there i'm sorry i live in the country (laughs) i know when i drive out 
out in the country, uh, and I've got my headlights, that's all I have. But I also don't live in a, a city of several million people. So they're afraid of running over someone, so they're not even using their vehicles. A lot of talk, you know, between the police and the uh, power company for getting this all back online, and we're back out to the hole again. It's a very interesting place for a fight. You know, I... I've done some laboring in my time, and I've worked in a lot of trenches like this. Usually there isn't, isn't so much room, you know, just to, uh, just to open up a power grid. Usually you've just got enough to be a, a couple of men in there, and that's it. But uh, there's room enough for a good Donnybrook down in the hole for Crimson Avenger and Wing. Crimson uses his fists, and the Wing, well, let's face it, he's Asian. He's going to know martial arts, isn't he? Gee, doesn't every Asian know Kung Fu? Well, Wing apparently does, even though uh, at this point in time in the 1940s, we don't even know what Kung Fu is. At least the West doesn't. Crimson Avenger, he, well, thank God he, he grabs a pair of leather gloves and he reties the power cable. He just knows how to do that. I can just imagine how many volts must be going through this. The lights do come on. Suddenly the, the crime wave is over. People are being arrested. And uh, one man is even fighting back his mugger with a cane. Is the uh, hand happy about this? Of course not. Fortunately, we don't see the electoral television. I'm glad Jack Letty probably saw through that little gag and decided not to uh, not to illustrate this in this Crimson Avenger chapter. But he sends his next crony out, and we see our first look at the Red Dragon, and we're going to be off to a hidden valley up north to fight the Shining Knight. The Shining Knight. Now for a quick journey to the little-known forest valley of Wamona, where the Red Dragon, horrible henchman of the hand, practices brutal justice for the sake of profit. And against whose evil strength is again pitted the valor and battle skill of the Shining Knight. One of the hand's huge airliners swoops down over the unknown northern Eden of Wamona Valley. There, men. Our objective is in sight. At the controls of the plane is that crime genius whose horrible face must be kept masked, the Red Dragon. I didn't know you had any lo loot located here, boss. I know nothing more than yourself, Braum. But the hand knows his directions are exact and complete. I ask no questions. You follow my example. And on the ground, a band of n northern Native Americans... Stares up at the airplane. See a mighty flying thing greater than any eagle. Can it be the fulfillment of ancient prophecy, the coming of the Wendigo? The members of the Wamona tribe, simple, gentle Indians who are barely known to the outside world of civilization, watch in awe as the mighty plane descends. The plane lands on flat ground near a beautiful river. Luck, boss, does redskins. Don't fear ignorant savages, Burl. Hail, strangers. I am chief of Wamona. Do you come in peace? Without speaking, the red dragon fires with deadly aim. <coughs> he killed our chief without reason or warning. Attack! No! Do you not remember the prophecy? The Wendigo has become... It has been foretold that a mighty stranger would descend on wings from heaven, overthrow the ruler of the valley, Make our people great and rich. See, the story is coming true. Great Wendigo, we are yours to command. You are wise. Obey me or more Indians will taste death. For a moment I thought we might be wiped out. Not I. 
the hand described that old legend and how I could use it to grab the rule of this country. Ah, look, boss. This is pitch blend, the richest deposit of radium I ever saw. Yes, I was told of that, too. It's what we came for. Round up those Indian fools. They'll do the mining labor for us. And now the scene shifts to a back order of a great museum where the quiet caretaker prepares for an amazing change in appearance and character. Justin, my boy, is the Shining Knight going to ride again? For the Red Dragon is roaring. Yes, Dr. Mosby, for the Red Dragon is roaring. Far to the north. He is now Sir Justin, clad in magic armor. Armed with the sword and lance of the wizard Merlin, the shining knight, flower of chivalry. By my troth, twill be a jasome joust. Let his heart be hot and his arm strong, for I love a fearsome fight. Faster, winged victory, northward, ever northward. Meanwhile, the red dragon's lieutenants drive the enslaved Indians like beasts to fetch the radium ore. This deposit is worth an unthinkable sum of money. And there can be no possible way to prevent our getting it all. Did you ever think, boss, we might double-cross your partner? The one you call the hand and grab the stuff ourselves? You idiot! What are you saying? I, I know you're afraid of me, so realize that I am afraid of the hand. That's how big he is. Next, boss, don't, don't hunt me. I, I, I take it back. Convinced that the red dragon is the fabled Wendigo, the Indians dare not rebel. My poor husband is ill from overwork. It is not right. Say not so, woman. The Wendigo has commanded, and we must obey. Only one man dares resist. The brave young warrior, Koma, who has fled from his miserable tribe. What is this? Another of these lying, stealing Wendigo things? I'll kill him. One Wendigo is too much for this valley. I'll kill you before you can do no harm. Merry good friend. I do no harm, save to villains. Waste no ar arrows upon my armor. See, lad, how feeble is your bow. My mail is not even scratched. Foul invader, I have other weapons. Zounds, tis a gallant man-at-arms, and one I would go far to meet. I'll split you to the chin, Wendigo. But the magic armor withstands the powerful blow of the tomahawk. Your strength is not, poor savage. And now to end the play. A snap of the sword of sharpness, the tough handle of the war axe is severed like a blade of glass. Your weapons are magic. I am but human. Kill me, Wendigo. I have no desire to kill you, brave youth. And what is a Wendigo? Koma then tells the Shining Knight of the sad events in Guamona Valley. And so the prophecy came true. Except that this Wendigo did not make my people great. He only enslaved them. A sad mistake, Koma. The violet who cozened you is the red dragon, foul of faith. But only a common man, even as you and I have come hither to overthrow him. Bide while I tether my good steed, then lead me to the stronghold of the evil. You are a true man, and I am sorry I attacked you. Perhaps we too can do something. Faster, you lazy red rats, or I shall warm you up with this whip. You see, friend, what happens? I see, and it shall happen no longer. Stand, scoundrel, and free those slaves, lest I gore you. I don't know you, buddy, but you sound like a rival racket to me. Drop that stab and iron before I drill you. Drill me no drills, wild violet. 
Thine hour hath come. I'll kill you. With that feeble missile? Look well how easily I slice it in twain. Running shall help thee no more than thy sorry bullets. Help! Help! The slave driver shelters behind a tree. The sword of sharpness mows down his defenses. Don't kill me, I surrender. Well said, scurvy scullion. That word safe thy caitiff carcass. Don't... I'll go. Now back to thy villain, master. Quickly, lest I slay. The grateful Indians would gladly worship Sir Justin, but... Kneel not. I am only a man. Come to save you from your sorrows. He speaks truth. Get clubs, stones. We will overthrow that invader who is falsely called the Wendigo. Boss, those Indians are ganging up to rush us. Led by a guy in gold armor. The Shining Knight. Somehow he followed us. Slaves have dared to revolt before. And revolts have been broken. Meanwhile, the other Indians have joined the freed slaves, ready to rail a bell against their cruel master. Tis true, your ruler. Is this red dragon whom you believe the Wendigo? Him shall I conquer. Now we know the truth of the prophecy. The Shining Knight is the one foretold who would fly to us, overthrowing the ruler of the valley for our good. Prepare defense. The white men come against us. On for liberty and right. As an arrow pierces the red dragon's top hat. Back, back to the stockade. We have one chance. Open the crates and put the tank together. The redskins are coming close. They'll rush us. Tighten those rivets. We'll meet them halfway. Mechanized warfare comes to the valley of Wamona. Full speed ahead. Man, the guns will whip them out. Our arrows are as nothing. Retreat. Yes, retreat. But only a little way. I, too, have a trick. Falling back, the Wamona warriors help Sir Justin in a strange work. What is this new wonder, Golden Leader? Tis not new, but old. Even in King Arthur's day, it was old. A catapult. Now set the stone in place, so. And wait until the red dragon's metal monster approacheth. Then... Loose our attack upon the villains. A perfect hit. The mighty boulder strikes and wrecks the tank. See, they are vanquished. Charge them! The crestfallen criminals eagerly confess themselves. Captives. Hold those arrows. Whither went the red dragon? My men have finished. I'm getting out of here, man, fast. See, our worst enemy escapes unharmed. Ah, but we too can fly, winged victory. The fray is not finished. Then is seen a wondrous sight. Winged horse and fleeing plane in close contest. Halt, wild dragon, lest I hew thee into slices. Bullets can't pierce that golden armor, but they can't hit your horse. But Sir Justin's whirling sword rolls off the rain of lead like a propeller. No harm shall come to my good steed. Have it thee, false dragon. The shining knight strikes the plane squarely. Mine is the triumph. As the damaged plane careens towards the ground, the red dragon falls toward a terrible death, but after him speeds his conqueror. Hold, sirrah, thou art my prisoner. So like a beetle on a pin, I collect thee. You have saved us. Shall we kill this monster and the others? Not so. Let your warriors lead them to the men of the outer world, who will punish them properly. There, too, you can sell the riches you dug from the earth and enjoy the profit. And so, the strange old prophecy of the trip was fulfilled. A mighty visitor flew down from the sky, 
overthrew the master of the valley, and enriched the people who lived there. And the name of that man was Sir Justin, the Shining Knight. And now the scene shifts back once more to the hideout of the hand. Easy hand. Easy now. Don't lose your temper again. After all, the Red Dragon did his best. The Shining Knight simply outmatched him, that's all. But I still have another chance. They call him the dummy, but he's the smartest of the lot. I'll follow his progress on the Electro Televisio stream. So I'm the dummy, eh? Well, the vigilante won't look like a dummy when I get finished with him. The Shining Knight rides to victory every month in Adventure Comics. Hi, and welcome back. Now my comments on The Shining Knight. And uh, I really like this chapter. You know, I know this is a vigilante podcast, and I know that I'm supposed to wax Mort Meskin's car, but uh, I really like Craig Flessel's art. I think we've got some of the cleanest and brightest and best line work, I think, of anything here in this entire comic, really. Mike's Amazing World says that we have uh, Mort Weisinger writing on most of the chapters, with the exception of Star Spangled Kid and the Crimson Avenger. But um, I think he may be wrong. Um, Craig Flessel is credited as the writer and originator of The Shining Knight, and he does write on his actual feature. So I see really no reason why he uh, wouldn't be writing on this one. And it, the reasons kind of become apparent. Uh, this one just reads a little more logical than, than some of the rest. I think uh, Craig really knows his character. Now, we're going to come into some things that, uh, some racial stereotyping that may make you cringe a little bit if you read this. Personally, um, as someone who works with indigenous people, uh, has indigenous relatives, nieces and nephews, and, um, you know, works in a museum with a lot of indigenous artifacts and knows their background and history and, you know, trade practices within the last three, 400 years. I have to say it's not that bad. Uh, let me explain. We're going for a quick journey to the little-known forest valley of Wamona. That's W-A-M-O-N-A, Wamona. Does it exist? You know what? I just did a little Google search. It does not, which does not surprise me. It's supposed to be the little-known forest valley in the unknown northern Eden of the Wamona Valley. So it's somewhere hidden, supposedly, possibly, hidden from time. Well, it's certainly not hidden from the Red Dragon, and it's certainly not hidden from the Shining Knight. But there is an aboriginal or indigenous, sorry, that's the proper word, group of people who, of course, uh, were in the 1940s vernacular. They're going to call them Indians. Uh, let's face it, that's what they're called in lawns in some places, including Canada, even though we're trying to break our habit out of that. And uh, the Red Dragon, he's an interesting character. He uh, basically wears a white tux, or red, black tux, pardon me, with white tie, and complete with a very shiny silk top hat, and he hides his face behind a red veil. So it's uh, kind of a very interesting thing, a great formality, perhaps he's, uh, you know, back from a wedding and decided to, to, to plop this red veil over top of his face. And I believe this mask probably seems to probably tie up around his ears. There's a point here in the story where he loses the hat and the mask stays on and he's bald underneath. So he's an interesting looking character. Uh, I think he's kind of a proto look of uh, 
Johnny Sorrow, if you know that, JSA from the um, the Jeff Johns, uh, James Robinson era of JSA in the early 2000s. And it's just sort of got that mask with a suit sort of effect. And he and his gang come into the Wamona Valley over top of some mountain. And again, we don't know where the Wamona Valley is, uh, but apparently it's got some fairly high mountains. They look like Rockies to me. I can say that because I live near the Rockies. And uh, I don't know if there's anything out in the Laurentians or the Appalachians that look like that. I'm kind of assuming he might, we're crossing the border here into eastern Canada and possibly into the, uh, oh, who knows, Michigan, Wisconsin. I don't know of any uh, fairly large mountains on that side. Or northern Ontario, Quebec border, which would bring us to the Laurentian Mountains. So, you know, exaggeration, who knows. We've just got a valley with mountains, and that's where Craig Flessel has decided to set this. Uh, perhaps it's something, the Hidden Valley Kingdom is a trope of comics, kind of in the wake of Shangri-La. Uh, you see this all over comics. Um, I'm trying to remember that uh, Infinity Inc. character, Northwind. Well, he has his origins in an old Golden Age Hawkman's story uh, from a place called Faithera. And there's all sorts of these places, you know, let's face it, Atlantis and you name it. So the hidden northern Eden of Wamona Valley. You know, will we ever see it again? Probably not. Or will we? Because I'm, uh, as a disciple of Roy Thomas, I like to do my own retconning and I like to do my own note prizing. So what if this uh, valley is, in fact, in Canada? And since it's a hidden tribe that nobody knows about, perhaps this is the Quantaka tribe. I'm going to try that again. Quantaka. If that sounds familiar, it's not from your Indigenous Studies textbook. It's from comic books. From a series in the 1980s by Roy Thomas called Arax, Son of Thunder. And since good old Roy never throws anything away, the Quantaka people also came out during World War II and they sent a, 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 one of their young sons by the name of Flying Fox to join the, the All-Star Squadron and their subset group, the Young All-Star. So if you remember that, perhaps we're in the Wamona... <laughs> Try that again. The Wamona Valley. Maybe we're meeting version of the Quantaka tribe. That's my no prize. And that's also my no prize to tell you how they are looking. Because if you go into the no, a known indigenous reserve or a band... Roundabout World War II, they're not going to be looking like this. Uh, they look like they walked right out of a uh, a Super Chief story or a Tomahawk story from the 1950s. They're all stripped to the waist. Uh, they're wearing, a, uh, they have, we've got a chief wearing an eagle head, headdress, eagle feather headdress. And they're wearing their Elkhorn breastplates and uh, breechcloth leggings. That whole thing. It's a very stereotypical look. Which, while, you know, they wouldn't be looking like that on in every day, Flessel at least is accurate in what he's showing here. Now, I know some of these artifacts very well. I helped catalog a very large collection that is uh, here in southern Alberta. And I also helped keep a, uh, a small indigenous collection in my job at the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. So... Um, I somewhat know my stuff. This was indeed a hidden tribe. Well, why would they adopt modern dress? So I will at least say Flessel, for all of the stereotypicalness that he's done, he has done his research. You know, he has pulled out 
I don't know, some Reader's Digests or perhaps some textbooks and um, really made a good appearance. This tribe of the Wamona Valley, they don't speak in stilted. They speak English. You know, it, I think it's very respectful, quite frankly. The Wamona Valley Police, the chief of the Wamona, welcomes the Red Dragon, who, of course, he is shot for his troubles. And they have a another interesting thing in that the, uh, the shaman and the people talk about the Wendigo. This is an actual thing in, um, in many native myths, uh, mostly of the Algonquin, the Iroquois, and the Cree of, of northern Canada. And, uh, it's called by different names. Now, if you d- think that name is familiar, if you're a comics reader, you probably remember it as an old Hulk villain from the time when the Hulk crossed over into Canada. He fought one of those great mystical villains called the Wendigo, another monster. That happened, by the way, in the uh, around the early 70s, around 1974, just before the Hulk met a short little Canadian by the name of Wolverine. So I believe if you're looking for the Wendigo, look about around about Hulk 180, because you can't afford Hulk 181. And uh, Wendigo, of course, as I say, is an actual phenomenon within, uh, as I say, many indigenous tribes of the Great Lakes and the North. And it's basically a, an evil spirit. Um, and that, has even, that legend has even come west out to where I live uh, with the Cree and the Iroquois in their uh, fur trading practices through the uh, 17 and 1800s. So they believe that uh, the Red Dragon is a Wendigo. They decide that this is uh, somebody that they need to follow until the Shining Knight shows up and, and, and ruins the whole affair. And he's going faster, Wing Victory, northward, ever northward, wherever northward. So we are definitely, I believe, across the border. And Red Dragon is really throwing some guff here on the on the Wamona Valley people. And when they see the Shining Knight, they think they think it's another Wendigo. Because one Wendigo is too much for this valley. And Shining Knight has to basically fend off an arrow attack and a tomahawk attack. He takes a sword and and, uh, and takes a war club and, and cuts it in half. Well, then they believe that he that he is there for our, to be on their side. Now, Sir Justin, you made a very faux pas here. You said your strength is as not poor savage. Who are you calling a savage, Justin? This man is in his own time. You're a Briton from the 7th century. Your people barely crawled out of the caves themselves if it wasn't for some old Arthurian legends. So anyway, that's just one unfortunate thing that I just uh, take a little bit of exception that. Well, why are these people savages? They're on their own land and their own property. Justin and the Red Dragon are the ones that are invading. They're the- and we get a Thompson submachine gun. Drawn pretty accurately, too, by Flussel. 45 caliber Thompson sub. And Justin's sword, uh, ever enchanted. Manages to cut down what I would see probably, oh, uh, an 18-inch uh, coniferous tree of some kind. When the uh, Wamona Valley people, after a fight with the gangsters, after Red Dragon's gangsters are defeated, they start to bow to him. I will give Justin this. He tells him, goes, get up. I'm only a man. I'm just here to save you from your sorrows. And they believe him. And on page six, we see that the Red Dragon has built himself a little fort. I guess Fort Red Dragon built to throw him up himself a little stockade. So he's come armed for business. And when the Shining Knight rallies the Wamona people with bows and arrows and they, to, they fight back, Red Dragon gets a nice arrow right through his silk top hat and he loses it. I like that. And then we see that he is bald. 
Yeah, here's an interesting thing. Back to the stockade. We have one chance. Open the crates and put the tank together. Tank? What tank? Where did that come from? You flew in there in a in a double engine plane. You know, something that looks like maybe a C4 Dakota. I don't think you're going to bring a tank in, in in a plane like that. But he says, uh, oh, it's in pieces. Open the crates and put the tank together. Well, because comics, let's just believe that. Let's just go with that. Put the tank together. Okay, you're being attacked with bows and arrows and people on foot and a guy with a sword that has a winged horse. And you've got time to put this tank together. Well, that's okay because they, they must have a snap-together monogram kit because there indeed is a small tank here. It looks like something you may have in the 1930s or, I don't know, something I've, I've seen a Japanese um, from early World War II that uh, looks a little bit like this. It's got a very small, I don't know, probably a 20-millimeter gun on the front of it. And one interesting thing, <clears throat> Red Dragon, you might know enough to have a tank here, but I don't think you know uh, how it works because you, you tell the gangsters, goes, tighten those rivets as they're putting it together. Um, you don't tighten rivets, Red Dragon. You pound or punch rivets together. You tighten bolts. Okay, that's enough of popular mechanics. Full speed ahead, though, the tank pulls right out of the, the fort. But guess what? It gets taken out by uh, a secret weapon. They've got a lot of bendy, deciduous trees and a lot of rocks. And Sir Justin manages to direct the Wimona into taking out the turret of that tank with a great big large boulder. And Red Dragon gets popped right out of the out of the top of the turret. Well, they're quick back to this uh, miracle twin-engine plane that can haul a tank. Certainly doesn't look like it. And Red Dragon is out of there. But wait, that's not all, folks. It just so happens that uh, Victory is tied up to a tree. Sir Justin jumps on him. Flaps a few wings, pulls out his lance, and does a little jousting. And Red Dragon turns that Dakota, comes at them. Bullets can't pierce that golden armor. And uh, Red Dragon, or Red Dragon, Shining Knight does an interesting thing when the plane um, fires a gun at them. He pulls out his sword, and he just does a helicopter with that sword. Remember, it's enchanted. It can do these things. And he manages to deflect all the bullets so they don't hit victory. Good for you, Justin. No winged horses were harmed in the making of this comic. Justin hits dead on into the Dakota with his lance and takes off its wing. And Dakota is going down, down, down. Red Dragon's plane is finished. And when next we see Red Dragon, he's at the end of his lance with the lance point through his suit coat and presumably through his butt. His uh, tuxedo pants as well. So, Red Dragon, this has been a very hard day on your wardrobe. Red Dragon has been seen before in the Shining Knight uh, feature in Adventure Comics. But apparently this will be the last time we'll see him. And poor the hand, he's over top of his electro-vision again. He's drawn a little bit differently in here than uh, the other artists have been doing. One panel, he seems to look like Walter Cronkite. But his next shot is, he's going to send the dummy after the vigilante and as we see the shining knight rides to victory every month in adventure comics as i said this was a pretty good story and uh flessel's art is just just spot on good inking bright color uh you can even tell the from the wamona here you can even tell one from the other i mean even though we're, we're in stereotypical costumes they're just well done the mountains which are too high for where shining knight should be well they even look good 
just like coming off a, a package of Laurentian uh, pencil crayons, if you're familiar with that. The Vigilante. Death holds the spotlight when a mysterious mannequin of murder invades the guttering realm of filmland. And into the glamorous world of make-believe crashes the vigilante, ace lawman from across the Wyoming plains to battle the dummy, sinister emissary of the hand, with western wits and weapons more fantastic than the most bizarre story ever filmed, is the perilous adventure of the Stone People. Hollywood, Mecca of movie land, and brilliant beams of light stab out in salute to Rex Mason, king of cinema. There he goes, Rex Mason. Boy, what I'd give to attend this premiere. Ninety minutes later and another screen triumph is chalked up for moviedom's favorite. We want Mason. Bravo. And now... I give you the hero of aircraft carrier, everybody's hero, Rex Mason, in person. And suddenly, and sable darkness blankets the theater. Oh, what happened? Is this someone's idea of a joke? And when the lights go on again, an amazing spectacle greets the audience. Re Rex Mason changed into a stone statue. Can't be. It, it just can't be. It's done all right. As hard as granite. I was in the audience when it happened. They'll have my stripes for this. If this is a publicity stunt, I'll sue someone. Abruptly, a cold, clammy voice knifes through the theater. I can restore Rex Mason to normal life again for $50,000. Otherwise, he will remain a permanent monument to himself. The dummy has spoken. Oh, that voice is coming from the projection room. And when the police reached the projection room, some masked guy sneaked up on it, let us have it over the head. And then he started that record playing to broadcast his message. <laughs> the Dummy, sinister scientist of the century, strikes again the next morning at the home of Barry Randolph, famous director. Master Randolph, he's been turned into stone. Exotic movie star, Louise Lila, also falls victim to the same baffling doom. More flowers from one of your admirers, Miss Louise. <laughs> You've been changed into a statue. Later, in a secret laboratory, four outlaws listen tensely as a ventriloquist dummy issues orders in a falsetto voice. Good work, man. You got to hand it to the hand for doping out this setup. But what about the vigilante? Yeah, what about him? He's on our trail. The vigilante? Don't worry about him. The world will see him like a stone statue like the others. I, the dummy, promise you that. And now... Your next assignment. Listen carefully. A few minutes later, outside the hideout, one of us more four must be the dummy. Otherwise, how could that doll talk? It ain't me. Yeah, one of us is a ventriloquist. But who? Me neither. Elsewhere at the Los Angeles airport, Greg Saunders, the golden-voiced prairie troubadour, alights from a plane. Mr. Saunders. He's as handsome as these pictures. They say he's a phony cowboy, though, that he's never been on West. Won't you sign this contract with Mammoth Studios, Mr. Saunders? We'll get a double to do all the dangerous stuff. By the time the picture is over, everyone will thank you really came from the West. Sorry. 
but I wouldn't dream of having another man take all the risk. Later, in the privacy of his hotel room, a lightning change, and Greg Saunders once again becomes the vigilante, crime-crushing plainsman. Sure is a relief to shuck off my dude outfit, now to take French leave. Larry had gripped firmly in hand, a nimble finger swings down into the alleyway below. This is one way to avoid autograph hunters. Not far away on the set of Six Gun Serenade, old Billy Gunn blazes away with twin Colts before the camera. I may be only an extra in this picture, but I'll bet I steal the scene. Suddenly, sorry old timer, but I'll have to fire you. You're not the type I need for this scene. You're not, well, western enough. Fired, great horn toads. What do you want for ten dollars a day? The vigilante? The vigilante? Say, he's not so hot. Just a lucky hombre who's got a lot of good breaks. Well, I bet I could even outshoot and outrope him. Abruptly, a cool voice cuts in on the conversation. Is someone paging me? Yippee! It's my old pal, the vigilante. Say it with six guns, partner. Holy cow, where did he come from? Answering the director's challenge, the range lawman flips a handful of coins into the air. Then, holy smokes, what a marksman. You ain't seen nothing. The vigilante could stand in front of a mirror and beat his reflection to the drawer. A moment later, the western Waddy flashes his twirling lariat into play. Say, what do you think of the vigilante now? I'd like to hire him. Boy, there's one cowboy who doesn't have to sing to be popular. On a nearby lot, on the set of Touchdown Blues. We'll give him the works as soon as the scene is over. Some smart stunt they think we're extras. Disguised in leather helmets as football players, the four phony extras explode into dazzling action. You may be a star, but you're going to stop twinkling in a minute. Lights out for you, big boy. And here's an extra point from an extra. Perfect teamwork, Nick. Now let's pull the switcheroo. Suddenly, the four outlaws shed their athletes' uniforms to stand revealed in convicts' apparel. This reminds me of my last stretch in the big house. Stop cracking wise. We got lots to do. A moment later, the unconscious figure of the leading man is crammed into a steel safe. A hand is a smart barrel, right? Bribing one of the top men to wield this safe here. This hand will be safe in a safe. It'll be a cinch to get out of the studio. See? Everybody thinks we belong to the set of that picture. Bars and stripes, where the cons steal the warden's safe. What a snatch, right under the eyes of everyone. But the criminals have not reckoned with the keen eyes of the ace range men. Those men must be getting ready for shooting on the bars and stripes set. Well, that's what you think. They belong in convicts' uniforms. They're all wanted men, how I want them. There's a reward out for you. Here it is. That's the vigilante. I believe in safety first. I should have stayed in the pan. Uh-oh. One of the thugs is trying to duck out. A little roping seems to be in order. As one of the outlaws races past the set of Tropic Doom, the vigilante's ever-ready rope lashes out. Too bad you haven't got the wings of an angel. You're telling me. The range man whirls his captive into an empty cage. Iron bars do not imprison me. But this will do for the present. Meanwhile... Once I let this cat loose, the vigilante will have his hands full. Claws gleaming in the sunlight, the savage striped beast leaps for freedom. Tiger loose. Help! 
Byron starred and the vigilante catapults himself forward as though he were bulldogging a steer. Here, Jim. Angry growls rent the air as the mighty beast strives to shake its human opponent. Man and man-eater are locked in deadly combat until the vigilante's lariat brings respite. The vigilante's terrific! Colossal! Why didn't someone tell me? I did, you Rico. Presently. Those convicts, they're gone. And you've changed Roger Monteres to stone. How did he do that? An envelope from the dummy. I wonder what's inside. If you want Roger Monteres returned to normal, put $50,000 inside the enclosed envelope and mail within one hour. Sign. Dummy. This is addressed to Frank Jones. Number three, Cherry Lane, Hollywood. Strange. We could go there and nab the dummy, but would such a clever criminal be so stupid? I don't get it. There's one more mystery about this case, Vigilante. I'll be able to think better after I get this pipe lit. Suddenly, as the heat from Billy's match flame accidentally grazes the envelope, the address disappears. And a new one comes into view. Great horn toads! The address has changed! 14 Raymond Street, Beverly Hills, California. Great work, Pop. This explains it. The dummy wanted the money put into his envelope and mailed within the hour. The real address was written in ink that would come out after an hour. But the heat from my match brought out the real address. Well, aware of the location of the master criminal's hideout, the two range rannies streak into action. Looks like it's roundup time, Billy. I can hardly wait to tackle the dummy. Meanwhile, at the hideout of the dummy. Everything has worked perfect, boss. If the vigilante hadn't interfered. Anyway, everyone thinks the guy was turned into stone. Yeah, the vigilante spoiled it. Suddenly, the dummy undergoes an amazing transformation. The dull, glassy look in his eyes is replaced by a burning flame. Puppet-like hands and limb become endowed with life. The, the dummy, he's alive. He's, he's not a doll. Yes, fellas, I'm alive. Neither the hand nor myself can tolerate inefficiency. Abruptly. The vigilante's here. Right, this is the end of the trail. Get him, or he'll get us. I'm a cow puncher from the plains. Oof. Seems we've met before. The hand didn't tell me what to do if the vigilante came here. Desperate, the mannequin of murder presses a secret button, and a section of the wall slides up, revealing a room full of stone statues. I'll have to follow a disappearing act. His dugs are all out cold, but where's the dummy? He ran into that room. Come on, Pop. The dummy must have ducked out. Nothing in here but statues. Golly, son, you're right. And there's, there's two that look like you and me. But behind the statue of the vigilante stands the dummy. I'll plug him right between the eyes. Yeah, right between the eyes. Pop sees. Vigilante, watch out! But a split second before the gun cracks out, the rangefighter steps sidewards, and he sends the line of statues beside him crashing to the ground. That takes care of the dummy. Help! Oh, what's so funny, Pop? <laughs> First time a statue ever caught a crook. Later in a cellar of the hideout. Well, here are all the kidnapped victims, and they're alive. Not stone. 
Yes, but they've been drugged so that they'll never remember what happened. Some racket the dummy had. All he did was kidnap victims, leave statues in their place, but that's all over now. With a roar of rage, the hand switches off the image on the electro-televisio screen. They failed, all of them. Even with the blueprints I gave them. But I could have succeeded only if I was not a sick, doomed man. Even so, I can still have my revenge on those so-called invincible heroes. The hand is going to die, eh? Well, so are his enemies. Ride high with the vigilante in every issue of Action Comics. And finally, I'm back on home turf with the vigilante feature. Weisinger and Meskin. Meskin doing well. I hope he uh, forgives me for my higher praise of Craig Flessel, but uh, Meskin on an off day is better than a lot of artists on a good day. And we open, we see the dummy is uh, doing something similar to the hand. He's uh, got his gangsters on puppets. So just think about this. Uh, who is the puppet and who is the puppet master here? Very symbolic. And the vigilante. Vigilante is here in the middle looking very much like an unpainted hero click statue. And we open down at the bottom. We're at a movie debut. Yeah, you know, the typical sort of thing you see at the Oscar night. People getting out of their limos and coming up on here with a very fashionable, good-looking man with a young woman on his arm. And there he goes. And everybody in the crowd is screaming for Rex Mason. I said Rex Mason. Yes, that's the name I said. And everybody has uh, seen Rex Mason's debut of his movie. And they're all clamoring at the end, We won Mason! Bravo! And they bring out Rex Mason onto the stage. And then we get a, a big Caesar style of blackout. And when the lights come back on, Rex Mason has turned to stone. Yes, I said Rex Mason has turned to stone. We have an important comics dis uh, moment here. Yes, folks, I am that continuity freak. I have found the Earth 2 Metamorpho. Of course, I'm uh, having a little fun here. Uh, Bob Haney and Ramona Freyden in the 1960s in Brave and Bold would, of course, create a character with that very identity. Metamorpho, the real Rex, Ma Rex Mason. Did Bob Steele front of this comic? I like to think he did. There you go. There, uh, Shag, Rob, forget about Aquaman. I found an Earth 2 Metamorpho because he's just turned to stone. And the dummy has done something that we have seen the Shade do in some of the Vigilante stories. He's got recordings uh, going to uh, mask his comings and goings. And within the few times, we have more stars that have turned to stone. Nobody that I think uh, will ever appear in a 1960s Silver Age comic. And finally, we have the appearance of the dummy as the mastermind behind this plot. And his gang is so out of it, they really think he is a ventriloquist dummy. And each one of them is in suspicion over which of which one of them is actually the uh, the one throwing their voice and is behind this master plot. 
that's a very interesting concept in the gang, and it's, and it's too bad that they don't just keep that up because that's uh, that's very Christopher Nolan. I think that's a heck of a good gig. Now the dummy is um, he's um, going to talk history again, folks. Don't go to sleep on me. I won't be long. He's inspired by Charlie McCarthy, and that's a ventriloquist dummy character personified by Edgar Bergen, who, of course, had his own radio show. And yes, 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 I've heard all of the jokes. Edgar Bergen was a ventriloquist on the radio. Gee, could you see his lips move? But in fact, uh, Edgar did uh, survive into the television years, so on things like Ed Sullivan and other variety shows. And in fact, he is the father of Candace Bergen, who you you may remember as Murphy Brown, and amongst many other... uh, big-time movie roles. In fact, uh, you can uh, read Candace Bergen's biography, and I, I know the gist of it. I can't say I've read it cover to cover, but she grew up with a, a bit of a jealous over Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen's uh, act. In fact, uh, Charlie McCarthy, that whole character, was so popular on radio, and in Roy Thomas, in 1985, he'll write that aspect into the dummy's origin in All-Star Squadron, around about uh, number 51 or 52, around about the time of the crisis. And then he'll appear again in, in Infinity, Inc. And, of course, uh, this is his first appearance. Although he appears to be well-known in underworld circles, and he will next tangle with the vigilante, but not very soon. I think we've got about a year and I apologize, I haven't looked that up right now. Uh, I think, I believe he uh, comes in at about uh, sometime in early 1943, but through the 1940s, he will continue to be devil vigilante. He, he will show up in uh, the, some 1970s vigilante stories as well, and also into the 1995 uh, Prairie Lights City Justice story by James Robinson. So he will come to be a long-term thing. He'll be getting his own who's who page even. So we're uh, at the Los Angeles airport, and a, I don't know, a TWA plane, perhaps Pan Am, doesn't really say. Sort of a transcontinental plane has landed, and the groupies are meeting him at at the airport, and they're meeting Greg Saunders. And, of course, uh, the groupies are taking over the role of Betty Stewart, uh, who is not here. That is, you just have to have have in a vigilante character. We're four for four now. In a vigilante story, you have to have. Uh, a female character called Greg Sanders, a phony and a dude. But uh, no matter, he is finally out west. He's in Los Angeles. And who else happens to be in Los Angeles already working on a movie set is good old Billy Gunn. Billy has finally got himself out west. Yeah, he finally got himself across the Pecos, Billy. And he's working on a movie set with another guy that I recognize, although the story doesn't really uh, say that uh, this is the same man. But in our last story i believe it was action 44 we have the hollywood director same appearance same voice gee i wonder how that happened but he doesn't seem to recognize vidge or billy but he is the boss of this uh of this movie set and the dummies gang shows up they're dressed as football players in what seems to be a, probably a newt rockney kind of a movie and the next thing you know they're dressed up as prison convicts and I'm sure they are very familiar with uh, that kind of a uniform. They're in a prison movie. And that's where Vidge doesn't mind taking a few rounds out of them. And a tiger on the set. We've got a tiger on the set. Well, we know that Vigilante can throw a 1,000-pound steer, so he doesn't have too much trouble with the orange kitty cat. 
And again, no tigers were hurt in the creation of this comic book. Although he does look like he's having a sleep. And another movie actor has been turned to stone. Dummy, you seem to have alchemic powers. And Billy's going to help him. Great horny toads. And finally, the four gangsters finally catch on that the dummy is alive and not a doll. Vigilante never seems to be able to land a punch onto the dummy himself. I guess he doesn't believe in, in beating up something that's about a third his size. But he sure likes taking another round out of, these, uh, out of his gang. And finally we get into a room here and we find a whole bunch of statues, including one of the Vigilante. So the dummy has, and one of the movie directors. So the dummy has been working hard here. I don't know how he's carving out all of these stone statues so fast. Perhaps he's got a 3D printer. Hey, we've got satellite television. We might as well have a 3D printer. And of course, we find out that Rex Mason have, has indeed not turned to stone, nor has any of the other characters, or any of the other actors that have been kidnapped. Um, they've just been replaced by statues. Just in a sort of a twisted, berserk sort of a prank by the dummy. Hand has finally realized he's zero for five in this. And he's fixing for the showdown. So let's have that. Congratulations, Vigilante. Hollywood never filmed anything more exciting than the job you did on the dummy. Well, Crips and Avenger, that wasn't much. I came over to congratulate you on taking Big Caesar out of circulation. We know the hand didn't intend to do us any favors. He thought he had planned the crimes so well we couldn't prevent them. I don't think our job is finished yet. By my seal, no, Green Arrow. Not till the master knave is forced to yield. An unseen witness of the meeting is the hand himself. I should have let those blunderers rot in prison. Now the world will laugh at me for the failure of my schemes. But I can still have the last laugh by crushing those seven. They won't have a chance fighting me in my own house. The hand joins the meeting by remote control. You are fools. Because you have outwitted my fingers, you think you can defeat the hand. Very well. I shall prove that you are wrong. Follow Highway 3 40 miles north, then 7 miles west to the uphill road, and you will see my stronghold. I'm in on my way. Come on, Stripesy. Once more, the hand chuckles grimly, anticipating events to come. <laughs> He'll never get past the traps I have set for the, for the intruders. Uh, the telephone? Hello. Oh, it's you, Doctor. What? C good news. A, a famous surgeon has discovered a new way of treating cases like yours. You can be cured. I'm going to live. I could have pulled those jobs myself. I needn't have blabbed the location of this hideout. Staggered by the sudden reprieve, the hand realizes he must fight for his life now, as well as for his vanity. Here they come. Well, let them. The concrete hand should stop some of them. As the Wonder Archers race up the steep road in the aeroplane, a giant stone hand pops up from a crevasse in the road. Oh, we're sunk. We can't stop in time. Now who wants to stop? The armor-plated machine leaps ahead like a tank riding a lightning bolt. Meanwhile, other formidable fighters are dropping in from the sky. 
The Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy in their Star Rocket Racer. And the Shining Knight rides down on Winged Victory. Wary of the reception in store for them, the seven use very points for entry. The Vigilante and I will take the back. Green Arrow, Speedy, and Stripesy scale the wall as the Shining Knight head in the front door. In the hand's office, an electrical map informs the hand of the progress on each of the intruders. Huh. It will be simpler to overcome them singly than if they were together. First to release the man-killing dogs. The Crimson Avenger is the first to encounter violence. Dark in here. Whoa. This gas gun will make you sleep in peace and save me from sleeping in pieces. And in a room at the front of the house... Oh, the violet symbol, as the shining knight stumbles upon a giant iron hand. Suddenly, as the shining knight sets foot in the palm of the great hand, it begins to close upon him. What knavery is this? This hand closes upon me. Hail to the magic that forged this blade to shear through steel and stone. Verily, this was what my 20th century friends would term a club's call. While the star-spangled kid, descending from the roof, has a spine-chilling experience of his own. Hey, I don't want to be perforated by those spikes. Got you. Lucky I was coiling up that strand of steel light. Lucky for me. As the vigilante closes the door of a tiny room behind him, he finds himself in a room wired for death. A heat from those electric coils. I'll be roasted alive. Unless... Unless I can blast the right wires and break the electrical circuit. And I can. Meanwhile, the hand is discovered in his lofty control room. There he is. I'll give him a surprise. Count me in. Ha! Huh. Not to engage the scoundrel in combat. The fools think I don't know they're here. Welcome, gentlemen. Time to surrender, hand. Avant, creature of evil. But an invisible barrier, which not even the Shining Knight's magic sword can pierce, protects the villain. <laughs> that glass is a foot thick and 12 feet high. And if you'll look overhead... Zones, this is a mighty enchantment. When I throw this switch, lightning bolts will burn you to cinders. A hot trick, eh? Forsooth, my friends, methinks we are doomed. Maybe. The hand hesitates as other visitors arrive. Looks like we're in time for the finish. Just in time for your finish. You have escaped my other traps, but you won't escape this one. You're too late. For a heart-stopping instant of breathless action, the fate of seven mortals hangs in the balance as Vigilante goes for the draw. If I can shoot it down, the Vigilante's bullet severs the lightning gun from its supporting cables. Look out, Hand, you'll be electrocuted. Too late. The Hand has struck his last blow at honesty and decency. Thus ends the career of a monster of evil such as the world have seldom seen. And let us hope, seldom will see. And thus is born a union of gallant heroes, modern knights of the round table. Noble comrades, need this be our last adventure together? Let us band ourselves into a fighting unit. Whenever crime storms, the battlements, are you with me? I count me in. Don't forget Stripesy. I'm always ready for action. Me too. I second the motion. That makes it unanimous. 
And so we leave these seven soldiers of victory until Justice's clarion call again summons them to action in the next issue of Leading Comic. Commentary for final chapter conclusion of the hand. And of course, that should be Leading Comics. I kind of left my ass hanging out there. Well, we meet back at the theater in Gotham City. We have our seven intrepid heroes, even though we've been following the adventures of eight. Yes, once again, Wing is either parking the car or he's uh, seeking financing for the Brooklyn Bridge. And they discuss their past adventures and compare notes. And as they do that, they are being watched. Of course, they are on Electrovision. Smile, you're on candid camera, guys. And the hand is watching them. And he must have the sound turned down, or the microphone turned off, because he's going into another one of his soliloquies, and he's just sweating up a storm. So that disease is starting to get to him. And so then he turns the screen and the mic back on, gives them directions to his house. Come on over, guys. I've got a party going on. Just as he hangs that up, his telephone rings. Imagine that. Over on one side of the desk, he's got this giant uh, forerunner to the modern iMac having himself a Zoom meeting, and over in the corner, he's got a ringing phone. You'd think he'd have a cell with all of his advanced tech. I guess he didn't get one at Degaton's garage sale. And who's on the other phone? Who could this possibly be? Well, it's the doctor. And the doctors, it's sort of like a setup to a very bad joke. Oh, guess what? Uh, we found somebody who can cure your disease. Oh, I'm going to live. I could have pulled these jobs myself. Yeah, 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 you could have. You bet. You bet, Han. And as he sees the soldiers drive up the way, he pulls the old master switch. And in front of Green Arrow and Speedy's aeroplane, a big stone hand climbs up out of the road. Boy, that must have been a public works job. Well, this amazing aeroplane, it must be built like a tank, because Green Arrow, he just drives through that stone hand, which is kind of strange, because it looks like there's room on one side or the other, but, gee, he drives through. He, he's he's uh, the twain of the Earth One Ollie, all right. As we look in the sky, the Star Rocket Racer is is flying in, Justin's uh, swooping down, coming in for a landing on Winged Victory. And I guess the Crimson Avenger and the Vigilante must have been riding with Green Arrow or, or the Kid. Because we don't seem to see the uh, mode of operation for them. By the way, at this point in time, we haven't seen Vigilante's motorcycle yet. And I will give the soldiers credit. They're going to tackle this very, well, tactically. Green Arrow and Speedy are going to use their car's catapult to do this to become second story men. Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, they're heading for the roof, doing the bat crawl up to, up to the top. Sir Justin, well, he's just going right in the front door. And Crimson Avenger and Vigilante, they're a little bit more stealthy. They're going to go around to the back. The hand has a schematic of his entire house, flashing lights that showing where his death traps are going to be. Uh, first, Crimson Avenger. Oh, by the way, Crimson Avenger is wearing his cape, which he wasn't anywhere else in the story. So somewhere along the way, Mort Meskin must not have gotten the message that uh, CA isn't, doesn't wear the cape at this point in time. Or he just felt like it. Hey, you want a cape? I'm the Crimson Avenger. I own a newspaper. I'll wear a damn cape. Crimson Avenger pulls out his gas gun, and that takes care of the wolves. Sir Justin coming in the front door, and there's a trap door with a giant hand over top of it. Oh, the varlet symbol, he says. And, of course, the hand 
is animated. And of course, Sir Justin, you couldn't walk around it. You had to walk right into the palm of the hand. He's got you in the palm of his hand, Sir Justin. And it's a giant iron mechanical hand of the sort of a type you might have seen in a Wile E. Coyote cartoon. But it can't stand up to Sir Justin's enchanted sword. You will see this mechanical hand again in about, ow, 31 years. Except it's going to be much bigger. Big as a planet, in fact. Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, they are uh, coming in from the roof. Right on top of a Bandesian tiger trap full of spikes. Which Sylvester uh, almost become impaled on. But, of course, Stripesy, he's got the steelite. And he, he could probably uh, match Vigilante. He's a bit of a roper himself. As for Vig, he's coming in the back door. And uh, he hits a short circuit. And he is buzzed. But apparently must not be very many volts because he's uh, composed enough to be able to draw both six guns and be able to break the electrical circuit by shooting at the wiring. Very good, Vig. I couldn't hit a... I don't think I could hit a 16-gauge wire. Actually, it'd be a little bit bigger than 16-gauge, but still, still. It's comics. We'll handle it. Green Arrow and Speedy, they're coming in on the other roof, and uh, they see through the skylight. They've got the hand in the hand of their hand. <laughs> they're looking at him. They're looking at him, looking at them. And Sir Justin's coming in the doorway of the office where these death traps are being controlled. Good old Ollie, he does the typical Oliver Queen entry right through the glass, and Justin right through the door simultaneously. Only they don't seem to notice that there is a... A glass wall, a foot thick and 12 feet high. And it must have been polished by some very good Windex because uh, Sir Justin and Ollie, they crash right into it. And of course, like a good old master villain, he's got his hand on a, on a uh, one of those nice big breaker switches, which he pulls. And as the other soldiers rush into the room, we see a large death ray thing dangling from the roof, being turned towards the soldiers. And Greg Saunders, he must have been counting his bullets. And he seems to know what he can shoot and what he can't with that gun. And he manages to cut through the tether, holding that thing to the roof. It falls, hits the hand, electrocutes him, supposedly kills him. But as we know, we're in comics. Even though we're looking at the body, we know he'll be back. But the important thing is the hand is stopped and the soldiers did it separately and together through teamwork. Which, of course, Sir Justin is really playing the Hawkman version here. He's being the team leader, and he suggests that they remain as a group. And uh, the vote is unanimous, as Vigilante says at the end. And we leave these seven soldiers of victory. So we finally have a name for this group, even though it'll take 31 years to somebody, for somebody to actually call them that. The Seven Soldiers of Victory, also known as the Law's Legionnaires. And I have yet to see that term used. But we'll keep looking. We'll keep looking. We've got uh, several adventures. We've got three years worth of adventures uh, right up until 1945, until Leading Comics 12. And with that, it's all been a very good adventure. The end was very short, very sweet. Um, the hand didn't have too much more than remote control death traps and a few dogs. So you'd basically run out of his resources. But, you know, for a guy in a suit mastering a cross-country crime wave or an international crime wave, as it were, taking us right down to the, the tip of the continent, 
he had a, he had a pretty decent plan, but I think his his mistake was in in challenging these characters. Thought he'd make a name for himself and go out the wrong way. And I guess he's going to miss his surgical appointment. And that's going to about do it for today's episode, uh, episode four, Leading Comics One, a 64-page comic with an audio drama and commentary, and I'm not sure I'm ever going to do it that way again. I'm sorry it took so long. It has only taken uh, several throat uh, lozenge congestions, a cold snap, and I only at least, I think, one system breakdown where I lost my underlying music and had to put it back in again. So, yeah, so we've got 12 of these, uh, well, 11, I guess, all together. Uh, still coming up there with uh, the Seven Soldiers of Victory as Vigilante joins them throughout the wartime years. And I'm definitely going to be doing the coming ones a lot differently than I did this one because it hasn't t- t- taken entirely too long, and I apologize for that. And it is far too large of a file. So with that, we'll see you next time. And uh, we'll do some mail and a wrap-up. And we'll have a brief cover-up for the beginning of uh, Vidge's role in All-Star Squadron. So until then, say it with six guns, partners. In the corner of a dark bar room Said a little cowboy singing western tunes Singing songs that he learned as a child All about the west back when it was wild So long partners, you've been listening to Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast All materials used in Prairie Justice are believed to be of fair use and remain the copyright of all copyright holders. Stories, images, and the character of Greg Saunders, the Vigilante, and all other characters used are the property of DC Comics and DC Entertainment. Feedback for Prairie Justice can be left on Facebook under the name Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Email go to vigilantecast at gmail.com website is www.rangergordsroundup all one word at dot wordpress.com and we sure hope to see you all back again for another ride with the cowboy crusader vaya con dios compadres eh cause he's the last of the same